I mean, a lot of people think that people like want to be addicted to drugs and it's like, I don't think anybody want, wants to. I mean, who wants to live a life like that? I mean, and you know, everybody wants to get well and they have the intentions of doing so, but like, like they don't just don't think they can or they don't know how to, or they've just had so much trauma in their life that they have no confidence in themselves at all that they don't even like believe that they can go two hours without it. And it's really sad. It does get better. I mean, you are able to, to hold a job. Your relationships do improve. The way you feel about yourself is better because you don't have that like weight weighing you down anymore. And you know, you are able to do some work on yourself. Like getting into recovery is like a huge step in working on yourself, which a lot of people don't don't really do anymore, whether they're in recovery or not. And I think, you know, just showing that you actually love yourself enough to take a chance, put the drugs down, put the alcohol down, and try to work something that will help you lead you in the in the right direction. That's Doug Bobst. And this is the Ritual Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey everybody, how you guys doing? What's happening? My name is Rich Roll. I'm your host. This is my podcast. Welcome. I'm joined in studio with my man DK. What's up, dude? It's good to see you. How are you feeling? I feel really good. Good, man. Uh, we have a really cool episode today. And I want to preface it by saying, or admitting, I suppose, that it is really fun to host these conversations with all kinds of world-renowned experts and celebrities. But what's truly a gift, what's really an honor, is periodically turning this spotlight that I have on the everyman, the often overlooked stories and tales of, of relatively normal, semi-anonymous people who have faced and confronted and, and ultimately overcome, conquered uh, obstacles to reinvent themselves wholesale. So if you're a regular listener to the podcast, then you already know my affinity, my penchant for these kinds of stories. They really are my favorite thing, my joy. And they tend to sit amongst my favorites and generally, I think, most impactful episodes because they're so relatable, because in these individuals, we can see ourselves because their struggles, their experiences, their weaknesses and strengths mirror our own. They are uniquely qualified to reflect back upon us our shared collective humanity in all its messiness and, and beautiful flaws. And perhaps most importantly, in their victories, we're able to viscerally connect with our own inner power and potential. So today, people, it is my privilege to once again share just such a story. It's the story of an essentially normal kid, a kid who, like a lot of people, uh, has struggled with depression. Uh, and at a young age, he starts using drugs to self-medicate. And what started out as pot ends up morphing into a pretty heavy opioid addiction that's met with this apathy for maintaining relationships with anybody who doesn't do drugs. And at the peak of his using, he was smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. He was snorting several hundred milligrams of Oxy, uh, interspersed with the occasional pizza or cheesesteak, but no exercise, uh, no self-confidence, and, and really no care for the future. What do you think about that, DK? I mean, that sounded really intense. It is, right? And so at 21, it all comes to a head. This guy, Doug, he's high on opiates and he's on his way to make a drug deal when a cop pulls him over for a broken taillight. 
I'm like getting sweaty palms just thinking about this. Uh, and the officer ends up finding $2,000 in cash in the car plus half a pound of marijuana under the spare tire in the trunk. So of course, Doug's arrested. He gets charged uh, on a felony drug charge and, and he ultimately goes to jail for two months. And that's hardly the harshest sentence, but it was harsh enough for Doug to hit his bottom and reflect on this life that he was leading. And he ends up getting sober and commits to this new life path. It's an incredible story. I'm gonna tell you a little bit more about it in a minute, but first. We're brought to you today by Momentus. Over the last 16 years, I can safely say that I have tried almost every single plant-based protein out there. And I can tell you that most of them are highly processed with tons of additives and or they taste terrible, they're not third-party tested or simply just don't hit the nutritional bullseye with a legit science-supported formula with the appropriate amino acid profile that promotes optimal nutrient absorption, which is all just a long way of saying how enthusiastic I was to be introduced to Momentus's 100% plant-based protein, which solves for all of the above and then some with a precise blend of pea and rice proteins, which yields a complete amino acid profile, tastes great, and has become my go-to to ensure my body is supplied with energy for proper recovery and function. Momentus products are simply the best in the industry, which is why they're used by over 90% of NFL teams, by Olympians, Tour de France champs, and world-class athletes across every sport. With all the BS in the supplement world, I trust Momentus's industry-leading quality standards and quality. Try Momentus for yourself by going to livemomentus.com slash richroll for 20% off plant-based protein and all of their top-of-the-line products. That's L-I-V-E-M-O-M-E-N-T-O-U-S dot com slash richroll for 20% off. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. I am sober. 
I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews, minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm gonna tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go, and it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own NA beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia, and he shared this story with me. I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but Basically, you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code RICHROLL for 15% off your first purchase. Okay, Doug. So I was introduced to Doug and his story through my friend, Amy Dresner. You know Amy, right? She's another sober warrior you might remember from episode 341. Check that out if you missed it. It really is a barn burner of a conversation. And in any event, uh, I checked out Doug because I trust Amy, and I knew right away that I wanted to get him on the show. And I should say up front that it's not entirely fair to characterize this guy and his story as that of the anonymous everyman. I mean, he is that in certain respects, but I'm just not the first person to tell his story. Uh, his saga has been covered by a variety of media outlets, including the Today Show. Plus, uh, he's gone on to do some pretty extraordinary things, uh, transforming his life from felon into becoming this award-winning personal trainer and uh, the author of a couple books as well and a bunch of public speaking stuff that he does. But I'm fairly confident this conversation is the most complete chronicle of his redemption. We talk about what it was like what happened and what it's like now. We go over the low lows, hitting rock bottom, and how over time he was able to put his past behind him through sobriety, through falling in love with health and fitness, uh, by leaning on mentors, cultivating spirituality and, and service, freely giving back what was given to him because self-esteem comes with performing esteemable acts. This is a story of redemption, full stop, and I'm honored to help tell it. Here's Doug. So, Doug, happy to have you here today. Super nice to meet you. Uh, really look forward to getting into this conversation. You've got an incredible story, but setting aside 
jail, recovery, drug addiction, all of my favorite subjects. <laughs> uh, perhaps your greatest achievement is that you got Amy Dresner interested in fitness. I don't know how you did that. That's like a miracle. So you got some kind of gift. <laughs> well, I, I mean, when I, fir I first reached out to Amy to interview uh -huh. her for, for my new book and I was talking to her about working out and I just saw that she was, I was like, man, you're so skinny. I was like, have you ever like, ex you ever worked out before? Mm -hmm. And she was like, yeah, back in the day here and there. And, you know, I finally, I was like, oh, here, do these exercises. So I gave her like some stuff to do on her own, some foods to eat, and she like didn't do it. And I was like, you know what? I'm just gonna train you. So, you know, we kind of helped each other out. You know, she would help me because I didn't know a lot of people in, since I didn't get sober in the 12 steps, I didn't know a uh -huh. lot of people who were in recovery like that would be open to interviewing for my book. So I just say, if you can help me like, you know, reach out to some people because I just, I just don't right. know, right? And I'll help you out with your workouts. And that's kind of how it started. And, you know, she's just, she's just like everybody. She wanted to see results like instantaneously. Of course. And I told her, I said, listen, you gotta be patient. It's gonna take time. I said, think about how long you've been beating up your body, you know, physically not really doing anything. And, you know, she actually started seeing some results like mentally first, she really started feeling mm -hmm. better about herself. She really started, you know, noticing the importance of being dedicated to something. And then at first it, from it being a daunting task of her working out, she was texting me, can we work out today? Can we work? I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> and then yeah. she was like, look, I'm getting some curves. And I'm like, and it's fun too, cause we have fun. I mean, we do it on Skype mm -hmm. and she's the most uncoordinated person you ever meet. She's like falling out of screen and she'll be the first to tell you that. And she like, you know, dropped the dumbbell on her forehead the other day, like trying to do a skull crusher. And I was like, I've never seen anybody do that before. Right. <laughs> so it's, it's, I gotta tell you, it's been fun. Well, she's refreshingly self-deprecating and uh, I love her. I think she's just amazing. But when I had her on the podcast, which was a little over a year ago at this point, I would not have you know, pegged her as somebody <laughs> who was gonna be getting like obsessed with getting fit all of a sudden. So it's super cool that that's on that that's the path that she's on, right? And you're the you're the catalyst for that. Yeah, it's been a it's been a blessing. I mean, as a as a trainer, people always ask me like what the what makes me feel good as a trainer. And, and the physical benefits, helping somebody lose weight or run faster and, and get stronger is, is definitely good. But just watching somebody see the, the 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 mental aspect and the emotional component of it, and especially people in recovery, because I really think that fitness and nutrition are two of the most underutilized tools in recovery. Mm -hmm. And and so Amy to be able to see that and now write a piece about it, it's just been something that you know I'm just really humbled that I was a moving part in that story. Yeah, it's cool. She just wrote this article that came out on the fix that you're a big part of, and I'm sort of quoted in. And Mishka, yeah, buddy, have you met Mishka? Not in per, you know? just through email, just you through the him. yeah. <laughs> um, but I think you're right. You know, I'm somebody who I know that you're you got sober outside of twelve step. You know, twelve step, just like you know, with Amy. You know, I'm a twelve step person. AA is how I got sober, and it's still you know the number one thing in my life. Super important. Um, but there's plenty of truth in this idea that there's space for trying to build in healthy <laughs> lifestyle habits. And you know, I don't know if it's an additional step, but you know, there's a lot of smoking cigarettes and drinking too much coffee, and you know, a lot of cupcakes and, and donuts going on there. And um, and I think uh, you know, it would behoove the community to embrace a you know a healthier way of eating and living and moving as part of that program of becoming more integrated and whole. Yeah, I mean, just I mean, as as somebody who did get sober, I said the twelve steps. I have the most respect for for them, and I. But 
you know, I think outside of that, you're right. I think there is some some room for fitness and for nutrition. And I think uh-huh. as people, you know, once they they stop, you know, using the drugs and the alcohol to deal with, you know, insecurities and stress and whatever. I mean, they got to replace it with something with something else, and not in a not so much in a addictive way, but just in a mindfulness way, and being able to to exercise and just building that you know, dedication and the ability to achieve goals, I think correlates in the recovery as well. Do people say to you that you've transferred your addiction onto fitness? I mean, no, because I mean, I mean, I guess now I'm at a point where, I mean, I only probably work out maybe 45 minutes to an hour a day, mm-hmm. five days a week. And I make sure to take the time to rest and make sure to take the time to, en- to enjoy myself. I mean, you know, I guess I can, I can definitely see where it can, right? If I was working out three, four, five hours a day with no end goal, like for no reason, if I wasn't training for anything crazy to work out for five hours walking on a treadmill a day, uh-huh. then yeah. But I mean, nobody's really ever said that to me because there's other there's other parts of my recovery, like with some of the people I hang out with and my spirituality and, and helping other people that fitness isn't just it. I don't think you can just do push-ups and sit-ups and never use again. I just think fitness and was the catalyst to getting me into recovery and then helped me along the way to meet these other things, other people in my life that have kind of helped me get to where I am now. Yeah, that's an important point. I mean, I, you know, I said this, I shared Amy's article with the caveat, or not the caveat, but just the sort of um, explainer that for me, you know, fitness is a huge component of my recovery program but it's not a replacement for uh, my higher power. It is, not, it is not my recovery program you know, in its complete sense, it's just an aspect of it. And I've gotten into trouble in the past and I've seen other people get into trouble in the past when they put fitness above everything and think that that is the solution to what ails them uh, at the expense of everything else. And that is not, I mean, just speaking from my own personal experience, like <laughs> that's not a tenable path. No, and I and I kind of, to be honest, you know, I at first thought, you know, when I got out of jail, that I could just run and do push-ups right. and to enlightenment, right? And then I hit a point, <laughs> and, then, and then I hit a point, yeah. and I was like, hmm, like I, I look really good, I feel really good, I'm doing, like I have a great job, but I'm still not fulfilled. And there was that point, there was that part of me that was that spiritual component that came in that I ended up, um, you know, developing a relationship with God because I, I didn't have mm-hmm. any relationship with anything. And then also like the importance of having mentors in my life, people that have been have been through life either in the business world or in the in the personal development world. That's kind of like almost like my sponsor. So if I'm having like a bad day, or if I got a business thing, or th- or this, or I mean that I need to bounce an idea off of, I have them to call. It's not like I'm just like putting my head down and trying to do it myself. I mean it's it, I mean for a while, the first few years. Yeah, the ego got in the way, but then I got humbled really quick and was like, "Boy, you better like learn to include some other aspects into this, or it's going to be a really long road for you." Yeah. So, who are those mentors for you? I mean, I got to say my my grandparents first and foremost. I mean, because when I got out of jail, they took me in, let me stay with them. So, I mean, they they are some people I communicate with every. Where were your folks in the whole equation? So, I mean, my my parents and I kind of had a torn relationship as a kid. Um, you know, I was kicked out of my mom's house when I was 16 because I was, you know, running around smoking pot and acting uh, like a little devil child. And um, uh-huh. and then my dad and I kind of always had a, we always butted heads with each other and kind of, um, it was just kind of like, I just kind of burned every bridge at the point. And my grandparents had just said, you know what, like, we'll take you in under these certain mm-hmm. stipulations. I had to 
have a job. I had to bring him receipts for where I was going. I got to be, had to be in a certain time, like certain accountability that I never wanted to follow in my life for some reason. I just was like, you know what? Like I need to do it now. Yeah. So where are you at with your folks now? My mom and I have like a, like a really, really good relationship. Um, like better even than when I was a kid. Like mm-hmm. we've kind of both come to terms with the things that happened when, when I was younger and my dad and I, we kind of, I mean, it's a family can be kind of tricky sometimes. And, you know, we, we'll talk here and there, but um, I just kind of, it's, it's, it's hard, you know, for me because he's my dad, but, yeah. you know, hopefully one day if it's intended to, it'll work out. But right now we, we talk when we can. Slow variety, man. Yeah, slow variety. You know I mean? <laughs> yeah. I, I feel you, it is, it's tricky, man, but time time has a, has a way of healing these things. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's track it back, uh, create a little context here. So paint me the picture of your wayward youth. So, I mean, growing up, my parents got divorced when I was five and I was always the kid that was super, like I love being active. I love playing sports with my friends. I love, um, you know, playing like recreational sports, but I was just like the most terrible athlete ever. I couldn't run, I couldn't jump and I could hardly balance myself. And so I was always like the one of the last ones picked. Uh-huh. I was always like the slow one. And so, and and on top of that, I was eating very poorly. Like, I mean, like lunch or dinner, I was obsessed with like pasta and I would eat like pasta and butter for dinner. I'd eat like cinnamon buns and like sausage for breakfast. And Genetics didn't bless me with having one of those faster metabolisms. So it caught up to me real quick. Mm-hmm. But so when I was 12, I started gaining weight and um, like 10 to 12 years old, I was like a little heavier than most kids. And I started getting depressed because I had this divorce and I had these insecurities and I'm now being dep- like depressed. And then I, my luck with women wasn't very good. And then by the time I was 14, I just was looking for a way out and I got offered a hit off a marijuana pipe and I felt like this monkey come off my back. Like I could be myself again. I could mm-hmm. be secure in who I was. I didn't have to worry about any problems I had in my life. And then it just, like we all know, snowballs into the next thing and I'm selling it to support my habit. And then I'm barely graduating high school because um, I didn't go to school as much as I should because I was skipping the, the smoke and Started experimenting with Coke when I well, got let's out. Let's slow it down, man. I mean, there's plenty to, <laughs> plenty to, we got time. Right, you know, right, I, wanna, yeah, yeah. I wanna understand this a little bit better. So um, start smoking pot at 14 and and walk me through the path from, you know, that first hit to like, now I'm gonna start dealing, like I'm selling this. Well, so I was super lazy as a kid. And so when I started smoking pot, I was like, oh my gosh, I love this. I need to do whatever I need to do to get uh-huh. more of it. So, that light, like the light switch just went on. Like, it went, this, this is yeah. for me, this is the answer to every problem I never knew that I had. Yeah, anything, yeah. any like, you know, insecurities, stress, anxiety, like anything was gone after I smoked pot. Like I just felt, I felt at ease. And so I just started meeting people and asking them where I could buy more pot. And then the more I realized I loved it, I was like, well, me making $6 an hour here washing dishes, I can't afford to, to right. buy as much pot as I need to. So I'm gonna start selling it to support my habit. And that's what ultimately led to me getting kicked out of my mom's house when I was 16. Um, I had a party when she was in the hospital, like, slow, like right before my 16th birthday to try to fit in with kids. Cause that was like the thing you did in high school yeah. was you had parties when your parents were away. Well, my parents didn't go away. So I, I left the bottom window unlocked and snuck back in after she went in the hospital and cops came to my townhouse and 
I thought it was a good idea to run, you know, for my own party. Uh-huh. <laughs> 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 We're not going to figure out like yeah. who lives here. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, you know, an hour later, I'm getting these calls from my neighbors, my family. They're like, "Where are you? Get back here!" And there, back I went. And and then it was about a few weeks later on my 16th birthday. I was I was weighing out a little bit of pot to sell to one of my neighbors and told my brother, I was like, watch, watch the door. But so mom doesn't come in and in she, in she walks. Mm-hmm. And you know, that was it. You know, the, the next day I was kicked, I was kicked out of her house that day. That next day I switched high schools, went from uh, Delaney High School, which was a pretty preppier um, high school to up in the country where my dad lived to North Hartford. It was like, you know, they had like drive your tractor to school day. And the people who went there, right. they called them duck farmers. Like It's like North of Baltimore. Yeah, it was like Hartford County. So probably like from Baltimore City, it was probably like about an hour, uh-huh. hour north up towards the Pennsylvania line. And it was just a, it was a huge, huge um, you know, humbling experience for me. And I guess they thought that it would, you know, to kind of take me away from the drugs, but I mean. Right, so your parents deal with this in the way that they deal with it. Um, but I would imagine you would say, irrespective of how they chose to handle it, like you were gonna be an addict, like this was the path for you, no matter what. Is that fair? Yeah. Like with that light switch going on like that. I mean, I guess what I'm getting at, what I'm interested in hearing is, given that there's a lot of sort of parent age people that listen to this podcast, uh, and being a parent myself, I'm interested in like, what is the, there's the knee jerk, parental reaction, like, oh my God, right. you know, let's catastrophize this uh, versus what is the healthier response? Like, how can you be loving and compassionate and understanding, but also firm and and not codependent when confronted with a situation like that? Well, I mean, I think with them, they just didn't really know how to handle it. They didn't understand it. I mean, it wasn't as, you know, back then I'm talking, you know, 15 years ago. I mean, it's so much more out and about now that, yeah. They, they probably, my mom probably just did the best she could. I mean, she didn't know what to do. She couldn't take the stress. I found out years later that she had multiple sclerosis and stress with that obviously doesn't, doesn't mend well. And, you know, I guess the, I had always, years later, I remember saying to my mom a few years ago, I said, I wish you would have looked at why I was doing drugs, not the fact that I was, because I had a lot of depression from the divorce. Mm-hmm. I was being picked on at school. Um, my athletic ability was, terrible and I had a huge passion for sports and I was watching all these kids that were really, really good at sports. And I was always the kid that never made the teams mm-hmm. and just looked on the sidelines being like, man, like why not me? Right. And it just unfortunately led to a big downfall for me. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to um, know what to look for. And it's, it's like when you look in the rear view mirror, it's very clear, right? Oh, here it yeah. all lined up perfectly for it to unfold in this way. But when you're in the in the moment of, you know, you have to be hyper present and aware to see those signals. I think. Yeah, I mean, and I think they were still unpacking stuff from the divorce because the divorce was pretty. It was rough. It, I mean, they weren't communicating hardly with each other, only via email, and there was child like support going through stuff. Their own thing. Yeah, custody and child support. <laughs> So I mean they 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 were battling their their own things you know and I think you know having me make the choices I made just added fuel to the fire and they were like you know what like I've tried to talk to you and just get out and it it was at a point in my life you know that I was 16 and I was going through I was maturing as a man and being without my mom because obviously you know when things don't go your way there was a violent like fight like not 
physical, but like yelling at each other. I said some things I would never imagine saying ever again mm -hmm. to her. And it just, it crushed me because my mom, I needed my mom in that time. I was struggling the most at that time of my life. And I, I just really, you know, I, I'm, hindsight's twenty twenty because our relationship right now, I mean, it, it changed forever being that, you know, there was a point where I wasn't allowed to live with her anymore. I wasn't allowed in her house. Yeah. Um, that it changed the trajectory of our relationship forever. Mm -hmm. And it's just now being able to talk to her openly and be like, mom, like you're my mom and I love you, but I can't say I have the same emotional connection that other people do with their moms because of, I said, because of the choices that I made and that we both made and where life took us. And it's, it's sad, but now we've both gotten to the point where we can talk to each other openly about it, which we never really had. I mean, it, it took gosh, you know, five, six, seven years for, for her to really come around and really be able to talk to me about it yeah, and forgive but that, me. But that honesty is a, is a bridge to, you know, greater intimacy. It may not be, you know, the intimacy that you see in movies, like the <laughs> no, ideal, no. you know, mother-son <laughs> relationship, but, you know, the most intimate that it can be given yeah. the circumstances. What do, you, what do you make of this current, embrace of marijuana that we're seeing in our culture right now. Like it, it's super interesting times because for the most part, it's essentially legal and it's super easy to get. I mean, especially here in California, um, it's ubiquitous. There is uh, this kind of weird um, idea that's floating around out there that like pot is kind of part of the wellness world, like with right. CBD and, and, and the use is so um, profligate that it, see, it, it, it comes off as at worst benign, but perhaps a performance enhancer for certain people. Right. And there are a lot of people out there that kind of use it all day long every day and they seem fine. And yet you're somebody who, you know, for better or worse, pot was like a gateway drug. And it's like, you, it's, yeah. like it's almost laughable, like, oh, pot's a gateway drug, ha, ha, ha. Like it's, that's so not true. But in your case, that really was true. It was, and I, I get asked a lot um, too about it. And they're like, I just say, just obviously, just like anything else, it depends on the person. I'm not, you know, I'm not for recreational marijuana. I mean, obviously the argument is, well, alcohol is legal. Well, I mean, yeah, it is, but it doesn't make it right. And, um, and pot was a gateway drug for me because I couldn't smoke enough pot to get high anymore. I couldn't, there was a point where it stopped working for me. I developed some sincere paranoia just because it just stopped working. And I could only, I mean, I was smoking like a quarter ounce of pot a day. And for those listening who've ever smoked pot, that's a lot of pot. It's not like I was just taking, smoking a joint a day. And so that led to me wanting to experiment with other things, not only experiment, but meet other people. Because once you get into the game of, you're starting to sell pot and you're starting to do more things, you start to meet people with harder drugs and more people doing it. And mm -hmm. That's what led me ultimately to, to try something else that's gonna alter my mind and cocaine. And then I learned cocaine and anxiety don't go well. It's yeah. like, <laughs> it's not, yeah, it's uh -huh. like the worst possible thing. And then- If you're starting to get paranoid on, on pot, then yeah. you know, the move to cocaine is gonna- So, But here's the thing. And here's the other thing that I, it's like more of like a, a lifestyle thing with the pot. Like it's like you ride around with your friends and you smoke pot and you're listening to this or listening to that. And I couldn't give that up so much to the point where that's what started my, my opiate habit was that I couldn't smoke pot anymore with my friends because I was getting crazy anxiety attacks. I was like, I wouldn't be able to drive. My friends were like laughing at me because I had no idea what was going on, but you know, I, hadn't, I was having anxiety. And 
I got offered a five milligram Percocet one day and I was able, again, that same monkey that came off my back when I was started smoking pot was the same monkey that came off my back when I took that five milligram Percocet. And I could get high again without having a panic attack. And it was, I couldn't give up smoking weed. So that's the other thing. It's mm -hmm. like you build this community of people you get high with and you smoke weed with. It's probably just as hard to let go of, you know, aside from giving up pot, if you're somebody that it's, you know, impeding your life, or you're struggling with it. And a lot of people don't think about that. Yeah. So where does the Percocet take you? Oh, I mean, literally down the highway to hell. I mean, once I realized how much that could help me continue to smoke weed, I also realized how much it would numb the pain of me being in a point where I'm you know, 18, 19, 20 years old and really disappointed in myself because I was a smart kid. I wanted to be like an accountant. There was times I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to be in the FBI. Like I had some big aspirations as a kid, but you know, I, I lost a few friends um, to drinking and driving accidents when I was in my um, when I was younger, and so I just thought I was going to die by the time I was 25. I just was like, well, it doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. And so each time I would get high, I would just it would numb the pain, and I didn't really understand. I mean, I knew obviously I wasn't putting kale in my system. I didn't, but I didn't realize how addictive this stuff was. Yeah, you know, and I thought, well, I'm not doing heroin, so it's okay, and. And that was just my way of just making it seem yeah. like it's okay. Those goalposts are always moving too. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. if you started doing heroin, it would be like, well, I'm snorting it, I'm not shooting yeah. it, or, or yeah, I'm doing it, but you know, I don't live in a flop house, or you know, whatever it is. Like, I'm not, you know, I don't have, you know, abscesses in my arm, so I'm okay. Yeah, and then so the five the five milligrams turned into me being needing to do ten to get high, and twenty, and forty, and then to the point where I was, you know, buying the oxy eighty milligrams and we were getting them from a guy who had cancer and was giving them to a, you know, and it was just the, the thing, you know, we were looking the time release off and I had like blue dye and red dye and orange stuff all over my t-shirts and um, got to the point where I was spending several hundred hours a day on opiates and doing some really pet bad things with my judgment that, you know, I, I just burned a lot of bridges with, with people and I just developed a new group of friends that you weren't my friend unless you were getting high with me or you could lead me yeah. to getting high. And it was just, it was bad. I mean, I was, I mean, half my left nose, my nostril was missing just from putting so much crap up there. And mm. So you're snorting oxy. Yeah. You grind it up to over override the, the uh, time release aspect of it. Oh yeah. And, uh -huh. and I wouldn't do anything unless it was like pure oxy cotton, like codone, you know. Where did, and where were you getting it? Just from connections I had made from the from the drug world, or you know, I had friend a friend that worked at a pharmacy, and then I had uh -huh. somebody that you know that knew somebody who had cancer, and you know, there's obviously a huge market in that, yeah. and they were a lot cheaper than they are now. I mean, now like the street value I think it's like doubled since since I was doing. It. I mean, I think you get like an 80 milligram oxycotton pill for like 40, 50 bucks, and now it's way more than that from what I hear. And how would you for somebody who's never taken that or has never done opiates like explain? the feeling of, you know, a day on Oxy. Like, what is it, you know, what is it doing for you? Like, what, you know, this is, I mean, I'm, this is an epidemic. Yeah, you know, I mean, There are millions of people that are hooked on hillbilly heroin. It's a gigantic problem. So, you know, wh what's the allure? Uh, I mean, you'd be riding around with your friends or with your friends looking like almost like it's another high learning how you're gonna score drugs for the day. And then you couldn't really eat because you didn't have any appetite because you were half withdrawing without having it. That you know, once you finally did figure out who had the best deal or who you could con to to get them, you get them. You, you know, like I said, we would lick the time releases off. We crush them up on a DVD case, like 
always snoring them with a hundred dollar bill. I was like, oh, and off a blow DVD case. You know, that was the way to, the cool oh, thing yeah. to do it, right? Right, okay. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> um, and, and then we would go eat and like a meal for me, like would be like a cheesesteak and two slices of pizza and French fries. And, and then we would like, you know, sit on the couch and like, just like talk about dumb stuff all day. Right, good like, times, man. <laughs> yeah, like veg out and like watch like, you know, um, like the Wizard of Oz or something, you know, create something, you know, or, or watch um, just movies and, I mean, nothing really productive. Play Xbox, play FIFA soccer. I mean, we did a lot of playing mm -hmm. FIFA. And you just, but your life gets really small. It does. And you don't realize how small it gets. You think that's it. You think that, that life isn't going to get any better. And you, th you don't realize that you don't have to go get high before you go to a football game. Or you don't realize you don't have to go get high before going to dinner with your mom. And you don't, you don't, you don't realize like what you're doing and how other people kind of see that, whether they're judging you or not. But you just all of a sudden think that like what you're doing is like, it's okay. And you're, once you get out of it, you're like, I can't believe I did that stuff. Was there an awareness that you had a problem or did you just think I can stop at any time? Um, for a while, I didn't, I really didn't think I had a problem. I mean, I mean, I knew what I was doing wasn't, wasn't right. But you, I mean, we were all, that's all my friends and I did. Mm -hmm. So like the, my community around me, that's what we did. So, so, to, so it was like a normal, it was a normal thing. It wasn't really until I started really not being able to get out of bed when I was, you know, got myself above the like 150 milligram a day habit that I was like, dang, I can't get out of bed without like mm -hmm. feeling awful that something's gotta, something's gotta give. And then when I would try to like, you know, withdraw a detox on my own, I would think about everything again. Like my life would come up, all the choices I'd made and all the, the people I'd, you know, pissed off and where I was headed. And, um, and then the stress of selling drugs that I was like, well, I can't be comfortable in my own skin. I gotta find a way to get more drugs no matter what. And you know how it goes, it's just- Yeah, the pain of that tidal wave of emotions and shame and guilt and anxiety and depression, all of that comes comes just toppling down on you so hard that it's it, you have to go back. I think that's what a lot of people don't understand about the cycle of addiction. You have this well-intentioned desire. You understand like, I can't live like this anymore. And you take a stab at trying to get better. And then the minute you start to experience that, the pain, the emotional pain of it is so severe that you're just like, fuck it, I gotta go back. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, a lot of people think that people like wanna be addicted to drugs and it's like, I don't think anybody want, wants to. I mean, who wants to live a life like that? I mean, and you know, everybody wants to get well and they have the intentions of doing so, but like, like they don't just don't think they can or they don't know how to, or they've just had so much trauma in their life that they have no confidence in themselves at all that they don't even like believe that they can go two hours without it. And it's really sad. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is gonna be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made, and that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fair trade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic fair trade cotton. Birch mattresses are made with 
None of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands, kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on Birch for about five years, and I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive, and the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem. A problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life and recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. So this whole house of cards comes toppling down on you. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> so yeah, share that aspect of the journey. Yeah, so, <laughs> you know, you're not exactly the brightest person when you're, you know, putting copious amounts of drugs up your nose. And my friends, parents, it was funny, you know, as I had torn relationships with my family growing up, my friends, parents like, kind of like filled in and were always kind of there for me. Um, you know, even though where I didn't have a place to stay because I didn't want to abide by rules or, or whatnot, I would sleep on couches. And my one friend's dad was like, Doug, 
you're riding around with, everybody knew what I was doing. They knew I was mm-hmm. riding around selling a bunch of pot. They knew I was like, you know, the, the, the goofball, like snorting oxy. And they're like, you better change your headlight. They're like, that's like a red flag to get pulled over by a cop. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, of course I was like the king of being, of the king of pr- procrastination and I never did it. And Cinco de Mayo 2008, I'm riding around with a few of my friends to go pick up some Oxycontin. I had a half a pound of pot in my trunk hidden in where the spare tire was thinking, don't worry, no one will ever find it here. Like, And I had a bunch of cash. And all of a sudden I'm like coming and there's a cop coming like on the opposite or running radar on the opposite side. And I flash my high beams at him thinking that it would like, you know, hide the fact that I didn't have a, a headlight. And it made, of course it gave him a reason to pull me over. Cause he's like, why is this guy high, high beaming me on Cinco de Mayo? Which of course I completely forgot was like one of the biggest drinking holidays yeah. of the year. And it's like, you know. Any excuse to pull you over. <laughs> yeah. So he pulls me over and it's me and two of my friends. My heart's racing. I'm like, holy crap. Like I just had this gut feeling that like this was it. Like I'm done. Like I, I just had a feeling something was gonna happen. And I was like, I have all this stuff in my car. What do I do? Where am I gonna hide it? And a cop like approaches my window, you know, asks me to, to put my window down, which had happened before. I've been pulled over before and luckily didn't get caught, but um, this was different. It felt different to me. And uh, all of a sudden, one of my friends in the back seat had an open container of beer he was drinking, and like the, uh, the smell of alcohol was like wafting out the car. You know, uh-huh. he's drinking like one, like a natty, like a natty light or something. Right. right? <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> and and he wouldn't give up the, the the cop was like, I smell beer, and um, uh-huh. and the guy, my friend, ended up like not really at first relinquishing the can of beer. And I was like, dude, just give it to him. Like he might let us just go. Like trying to hide it. Yeah, Cause I was only 20 years old. Right. We were all, we were all on, oh, you know, and, uh-huh. and so he ends up, <laughs> he ends up giving it to him. And, um, you know, then he asked me more questions. He's like, do I have the right to search? He's like, I give me a reason to believe that, you know, you have some illegal stuff in here. Do I have the right to search your car? And for some reason I said, yes, go ahead. <laughs> and, uh-huh. and then he's like, all right, come out of the car. And, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. If I'd said no, what would have happened? But I mean, neither here nor there. And I said yes. He pulls me out of the car. I was like, well, they're never going to find mm. the pots in the spare tire, right? And out comes the pot and all the money. And like my heart has, was already racing. It was like racing like twice as fast. I'm like crying. I was thinking about all the negative choices and all the, the things that have happened that I, uh, the choices I made and everything that had happened to me that come to that, it all came to that, came to a point. And I was, I'm sitting in the back of that cop car and I just didn't think I was gonna make it, Rich. I gotta tell you, like, I thought that was it. I thought I was gonna either spend the rest of my life incarcerated or just kill myself. Something, I mean, something bad I thought was gonna really happen it ended up being the biggest blessing in my life. Well, I would submit to you, uh, and I'm sure you've thought about this, but perhaps on some level, albeit maybe an unconscious level, you wanted to get caught. Because if you had people saying, look, man, you got to change your light out. Yeah, you can chalk that up to laziness. Um, But the fact that you didn't get your headlight fixed, you turned a blind eye to the fact that it was Cinco de Mayo. And when the cop asked you if he could search your car, you said, sure, fine. Like there's something inside of you, I think, that was trying to save yourself by getting caught. Yeah, you're probably right. I mean, I I just, I had no other way out. There was no other way out. I knew I was going to get to a point where I was either dead in jail or a combination of both because my friends and I always like joked around that we weren't gonna, they were like, what's the point of like living past 30 if we can't like party hard anymore? Right. 
And so I just was like, I was, I, I had like come to that realization that that was going to be my life. And then I remember getting going to jail, and you spend that night in jail. That was, you know, it's awful, right? Because you're like, I'm like high on opiates, but hadn't gotten the next high that I wanted. So it was like a total buzzkill, like, <laughs> like to the like fullest extent. And then, um, <laughs> so I put like seventy thousand miles in that car. I got pulled over in selling drugs, and I was also a delivery boy. So it gave me you're an delivering ex- pizzas. Yeah. Uh-huh. So it gave me an excuse to like ride around and. And you know, a couple of buddies and I worked at the same pizza shop, so we would park our car at like a Burger King. We'd all ride together and go on like a high ride and smoke weed together, and you know, pinch off like French fries here and there out of people's foods. And mm-hmm. and so, but I put seventy thousand miles on my car. And so, a few weeks later, after I got arrested, um, I didn't change my oil, and I was driving on six ninety five. Uh, and my car like blew up. Like it uh-huh. just started smoking. <laughs> that was it. Just died <laughs> on the side of the road. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I'm like, oh man. So. So my grandparents. Well, it's a yeah, me, you know, it's a metaphor. Just like you know, just like ride it hard until it's the whole thing just blows up in your face. Yeah, and my grandparents talk about another like silly, not silly choice, but it was almost like I that I that I almost wanted to make was, you know, we met with a. I mean, I got charged with the felony, the intent to distribute marijuana, and you know, possession of paraphernalia and stuff. And I knew the only one that really mattered was when I got arraigned for the felony charge. And my grandparents were like, "All right." We'll give you money for an, to pay for a lawyer or to get you a car. And I was like, well, if I don't have a car, I can't do drugs or sell drugs. Right. And I was in the whole Ge- five. You're <laughs> genius. And I was in the whole five grand to a drug dealer. <laughs> so, cause when I got busted, I was already like leading up to my arrest, like I had been robbed. Somebody like ripped me off like a half a pound of pot and I was in the hole a couple thousand to him already. And I was trying, I was literally done. I remember going to my grandparents and we were just talking about this. I said, I'm done selling drugs. I was like, can you please just lend me the money to pay this guy off and be done with it? And they said, no, we're not, mm. we're not, we're not funding like, in a, like a criminal activity for you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I find it kind of charming though, that you're honest with your grandparents. So like, I'm selling drugs and I'm in trouble. Can you help me? <laughs> Well, they kind of like I want, <laughs> but it was, we, were, we were talking about this recently, and I was it was almost like the biggest blessing because if they did, it would have just given. I don't who knows where I would be now, and and yeah. so when um, I owed this guy five grand, um, I ended up you know getting like a geo prism or something that was like that <laughs> the driver door ended up like breaking, so I had to like Dukes of Hazard it to get in every time. It was like the awful, most awful thing to pick up a a, a date in, but um, so I owed this guy five grand. And he was obviously after me for $5,000. It's not like I owed him like $20. Uh-huh. And um, my brother actually ran into one of my roommates at one of the local bars. And my roommate had told him what was going on. And my brother called me and was like, hey man, like I heard what happened and I heard you owe this guy money. He's like, I wanna give it to you. I was like, ah, man, don't you don't wanna get yourself involved in that. And he's like, no, I want to. I was like, all right. And so we we met at the bank. He gave me he pulled out five grand in cash. He was one of the, my brothers, a couple of years younger than me. And he was always the kid who like saved all his money. I spent all my mm-hmm. money. He saved all his. And I remember meeting this this drug dealer at a we were at like Outback or Carabas or a restaurant like that. And I just I gave him the money and I just said, listen, man, I'm done. And I thought that would close a chapter in me and not being in debt to my not being in debt and working on paying my brother's back my brother back, but you know, one thing other than the next, and I'm gonna borrow more money to, to get high and borrow more money and borrow more money and to the point where now I'm, I've am i owed him 
and my brother on like nearly ten thousand mm-hmm. dollars for for drugs and lying about what I needed it for and and so September I got arrested in May and this kind of all transpired with paying my drug dealer off you know in the months to follow and uh, September I went to court and I was high in court I had I was supposed to like you know they were like you better like pass some drug tests like before you come to show you've been like mm-hmm. clean and they didn't do that. So you did, did you just have a public defender? Yeah, well, so my dad had like a, he knew like a guy who was like a general attorney. Um, he wasn't like any high high power attorney or anything, but I guess just somebody there, it was kind of like just to, to be there with me. Uh-huh. And um, I had no idea what to expect. All the lawyers I had talked to were like, you're gonna, you're definitely doing jail time. It was my first offense, but they were like, you're in Hartford County, which is like a super conservative county. And um, they're like, you had like a lot of pot and they found a scale and you admitted that you had drugs, like that you admitted that everything in your car was yours. So, um, And your lawyer didn't say, listen, man, you gotta at least post up at some AA meetings and get a court card signed. And so you can show the judge that you're trying to mend your ways. I think they had said something like that. And I remember I walked matter. in and I just didn't didn't really matter. I didn't right. care. And I got to I got to court and the judge looked at me, and he was like, you know, he'd ask, you know, asked me serious questions, was cross examining me, and I just obviously admitted everything. And the lawyer had said, hey, we've kind of made a deal with him that he's going to give you the maximum sentence, but I think you're going to like what he has to say. And I was like, maximum sentence, and and so he looks at me and he's like, Doug, you know, I find you. You know, guilty of felony, the felony drug charge, intent to distribute marijuana, and he dropped, he dropped the other stuff. But he said, "I'm going to sentence you to five years, suspended everything but 90 days, meaning I just had to do the 90 day jail sentence, and I was backing up the five, wow. five years probation, 200 hours community service, all kinds of drug classes and fines." And he's like, "Doug," and, he, and then I had to abide by the rules of parole and probation. And he's like, "But if you complete everything without messing up, after the five years is up, I'll take the felony off your record." And I remember looking in court, I was, tw- I was looking at him in court and I was 20 years old mm. and I didn't think I was gonna live to see my 25th b- birthday. And I was like, yeah, whatever. And I was doing the math. It was like 2008. I was like, well, isn't the world gonna end in 2012? Like that whole thing, right? So I was like five years. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah. I'm gonna, by the time I would get off probation, I'm not, gonna, codal. Yeah, I'm not gonna be able to experience life. Yeah. <laughs> and oh, and yeah, and, and I got out and, I mean, that's pretty amazing. 90 days. Yeah. Jail time. Yeah. And then everything else you can deal with, you know, outside. Yeah. And I just, I didn't know how because to that point, like I hadn't found a successful way to stop doing drugs. Right. Like I was like, how am I going to do this? But I knew, like, I knew I had to because he was like, if, if I completed everything, the felony come, would come off my record. But I had no idea. And then, you know, I got out of court and I went to go get high again. And, you know, I was like definitely like the one last hoorah. I went to jail um, a week after my 21st birthday. So a few weeks later, cause it gave me some time to like kind of get my belongings, spend some time with mm-hmm. my family, which I didn't really do. And I remember reporting the jail, or right before I reported the jail, it was like, I'm gonna do as much oxy as I can. I got a prescription of Suboxone to take in with me because I was like, all right, well, I'm gonna detox and they're hard. So I'm gonna need something to like wean me off. And of course, I didn't realize Suboxone was a narcotic. Yeah, they're not gonna (laughs) let you bring that in. I thought they, I was like, I thought they would. And so I just, I literally like did like, I think like two or three 80 milligram pills before I went in. Like, and like I literally did them and then drove. No, of uh, Oxy and then drove it. And then had the Suboxone with me thinking I could take it. Uh And then I get there 
they strip me of all your belongings and my life's confined to a small cell with a bag. And they're like, you can't take this Suboxone. I'm like, why? It's, it's, it's prescribed to me. They're like, it's a narcotic. I was like, oh no. And then, you know, day one, it was just like, it was hell. I mean, I, I had no idea what was gonna happen in there. I was like, you know, you're, you're worried about all the stuff, all the stigmas of jail getting beat up, you know, getting taken advantage of, you know, and, I just, I didn't know what to expect because I, I was, I couldn't have been a model for Pillsbury at the time. Like I was, I was heavy, I was unathletic. I couldn't defend myself if I wanted to. And then I get to jail and, you know, I end up getting kicked out of my first two cellmate cells because I didn't read, you know, jail 101 on how to, how to abide by the rules. I mean, I ended up crawling into my first cellmate's bottom bunk when he was out doing some stuff in the common area. Cause I was so weak, I couldn't get up to the top bunk. Cause, mm. and, he comes in, he's like, what are you doing? And out I went, like, luckily I didn't get my butt kicked. And then my second one was this older guy. I ended up like doing something to piss him off. Like like using, I was out of toilet paper or something, use his white washcloth to like wipe my butt or something. Wow. <laughs> that doesn't sound like a good idea. No. So I, I don't know I that you needed to read a manual on jail 101 <laughs> to understand that that was probably a bad move. Well, I mean, yeah, I know. <laughs> I just wasn't obviously, I was, I was like a complete, like the people yeah. in there were like, you were a zombie when I first right. came in there. And I detoxed for like two or three weeks, like hard, like, I mean, if, you know, vomiting, feeling like you're crawling out of your own skin. Right. And, and I saw this guy, like he came up to me at the Scrabble, I was, he was playing Scrabble. He's like, what are you doing in here, man? He was soon to be my, my cellmate. And I'm like, I, I don't know. And, and then that night after dinner, I saw him working out. He was like, you know, climbing the stairs and doing like thousands of push-ups, and I was like, "Oh my god!" Like running, like like David Goggins style. You know what right. I mean? Like and and I just like, who is this guy? And he's like, and he had been. I've come to find out, he had been in for ten years. He was in the the jail. I was in on a on a on a detainer for um, violating a probation, and he just looked at me, and somehow he like he asked me a little bit about me. I shared a little bit of my story. He was a you know. An, opiate act and he he just kind of was like you're gonna start working out with me and i was like there's no way man there's no way i'm gonna work out with you because at the time i'd never really done any organized exercise other than gym class here and there i mean my parents got me a trainer but nothing like that like that, that lasted that stuck it was almost like they knew i, I needed to lose weight because i was always the fat kid you know and um i remember finally after him being my cellmate because he finally like it just happened when i pissed off this old guy um, his cellmate left and then he was like, all right, you're in with me. And he was like, once you get through your detox, which is you know, th about three weeks later, you're gonna start working out with me. And mm -hmm. the first night, man, Rich, I tell you, <laughs> it's the most humbling night. I mean, if I hadn't been humbled enough by the stuff, like being able to not do a push up from your knees in front of a bunch of grown men or hold yourself up in a plank yeah. and then have your guy tell you it's because you're fat is so humbling. Well, I got a whole bunch of questions. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> I mean, first of all, um, could you not have gotten high in jail? I mean, there really wasn't. Was there, was there, would it have been possible to score? Ah, uh, there was some stuff that came in, but not really, not like that. Uh, I mean, not where I if was. If you had read Jail 101, maybe you would have known how to, how yeah, to yeah, I mean, know, people were bringing hustle that yeah. up for yourself. Maybe, yeah, I think so. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, people were like, I think people, like, people would come in and spend weekends. And that's, I think, when some of the stuff would come in. Uh huh. But, you know, it, it wasn't like I was in, I wasn't in state prison where yeah, it was Yeah, you're not like, in prison, it's different, right? Yeah, I mean, it's like not like, it wasn't, you know, there's not a lot of 
drug trade that goes on in there because people are just, I think, trying to get get in and get out of there or trying to await their court uh-huh. and not mess up, hopefully, before they go to court. All right, and so the second thing is then, was there an, was there like a commitment to yourself, like okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna get through this detox and I'm gonna get sober, or was it just like I, I just I can't get anything in my system today, so I guess it is what it is. Like, was there a sense of like I gotta like sort this out for myself and get on a new track? It was more just a panic. Like as I was going through it, I didn't know. I didn't. I didn't know. I'd never gone through this before, so I had no idea. Mm-hmm. What to expect? You've never done a full detox. No, what to expect? And I was shaking, and I mean, I don't know if I had at that point. I didn't really have a desire to be like, I'm never doing drugs again. I just was like, I need to get through this detox so I can like stop crying and stop shaking and stop feeling so nauseous all the time. And the pain, and the aches came because you know I was taking copious amounts of painkillers that I'm like so like numb. Yeah. And then you know I had to wake up. Once I got through that, which was really tough, I had to realize that I had nothing in my system anymore to numb the pain. So all the the stuff just came before my my eyes as of all the stuff I'd done, all the stuff I'd never really dealt with inside. And it took a lot because there was no drugs, there was no, um, you know, gambling or spending money or whatever you know would fill the void. It was just me, and I really had. No choice. I mean, then, and then like you get through detox and you realize, well, like, whoa, like I'm in jail right now. Like, mm-hmm. you know, your mind starts to become less foggy and they're like, I got to eat that for lunch. And it was like, you know, like sweaty meat sandwiches. We would call them because it was like mystery bologna meat uh-huh. <laughs> or like peanut butter and jelly, which wasn't, I would look forward to the peanut butter and jelly days. The reality of your situation <laughs> kind of dawns on you. Well, yeah. And, and then when my cellmate was like, you're going to start working out with me, I, I just, I was like, whoa else do I have to do in here? We can only play spades, pinochle, scrabble, and chess and tell war stories for so long before I got to do something else. Right. So this guy, Eric is his name, yeah. right? Um, he becomes your cellmate. And this guy, not only is he, you know, this fitness specimen, like he takes a real, more than a real interest in you. Like he basically becomes <laughs> obsessed with getting you fit. Like he really takes you under his wing. And like this guy changes your life for, for better or worse, right? So why, why, like what motivated him to be so committed to you? I think he might've saw something inside of me that just struck a nerve with him. They saw how much I was struggling and for him, he probably was in a, he knew he was in a spot where he had made some poor decisions to get to where he was and to make himself feel better, you know, cause we all wanna be of, of service, right? It's like a natural thing for us to wanna help other people that that was part of what he wanted was, well, I'm in jail. He's like, you know, I'm, I'm sure he was like, you know, I'm in jail right now. I got nothing else to do. Why not this kid here, this poor goofy kid mm. who's a train wreck right now and kind of like was like the Amy Dresner, right? Like, how about I try and change this kid's life? And I don't know, I don't know why, but I don't know why he picked me out of all the pe- all the people. But I just think because I just, as much as I wanted to quit on him, I never, I never quit. And you know that. And first, why do you think you never quit? Like, what what got lit up inside of you that made you suddenly go from being, um, you know? just the, the Pillsbury Doughboy type right. guy to being like, I'm not gonna let this guy down. I'm gonna show up. I'm gonna do everything he says. Well, I, I think 
when I couldn't do a push up from my knees and I could barely walk up and down the steps and like I, I was like in the realization of what my situation actually was, I was like, what have I come to? And then they also like a lot of the people in my past like didn't believe in me. Like they didn't believe me. They're like, you're not gonna make it. Like you're going to rehab when you get out and da 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 da. Like all the negative stuff that I had no one, no one like believed I was gonna really make it. Yeah. And I just wanted to prove people wrong. And then once I was able to see some progress, like I think I was able to do like a set of, of a few pushups from my knees. I was like, wow, there's magic in this. And then once I, and then Eric, for some reason, I believed everything he said for everything. And I think I could just feel in my my heart that it was like authentic and genuine from a place where he was coming from. Like he had nothing to lose, right? Yeah. And and then it just, it really started where we set the goal to do 10 pushups when I left and then to run a mile. and. I felt like this light switch start to go off in my head. Like the same monkey that I felt come off my back when I was smoking pot was the same monkey come off my back when I was running. And I would run and even, and sometimes like, I mean, at the start, I could obviously only run like a 10th of a mile. We'd have like this common area inside jail where all the tables were set out at and there'd be TVs and there'd be people playing um, Scrabble and games and stuff. And you could run around the perimeter so I would hold like a call, like a deck of cards, and I would uh -huh. count, you know, one, two, like the laps. And right. so one of the how how big was this room? It wasn't big. I don't yeah. remember how many laps it was a mile. It must have been like, I don't. Remember. It was a lot. Like so, there's no gym. No, no gym. You're it just was, you're doing push-ups on the floor in the common room, and yeah, on the concrete. It's like you know, uh -huh. and and so I just felt like I felt like I could be able to to kind of relieve the stress of whatever I had going on in my life by running, by doing push-ups, by seeing, by, by starting to achieve some goals. Like I was able to do a few push-ups on my knees that led to me doing a push-up for my feet. And then I was like, I was starting to see some differences in my body because he put me on like a jailhouse food plan where I couldn't eat the bread and I couldn't eat like the um, Snickers bars. And, you know, we did have cheat meals on Sunday. We would call them like hookups where we would take all our like... <laughs> <laughs> we take ramen, we get ramen noodles off commissary, right. cheesy rice, like the little dude, like little sausages and the meat from the week. And we'd uh, put it all in a plastic trash bag and use boiling water, tie it off. And then um, like let it sit for like, with, for like 30 minutes, you know, uh -huh. like Thanksgiving in the joint. Super gourmet. <laughs> yeah. Like amazing. I remember when I got out, I'm like, I'm like, guys, you want a hookup? And they're like, what? You want a hookup? No, no. I'm like, make you a hookup. And they were like, and I was telling them, like, dude, that sounds absolutely disgusting. Uh -huh. But so, and but so then my all the people inside of the jail, like besides my cellmate, were like cheering me on because they saw when I came in, I was a zombie. I was getting kicked out of cells. I was like, you know, freaking out, asking a million questions about what jail was going to be like. And then like the consistency, they saw the consistency of me running. And when I was able to to do the push-ups, I remember my dad and my brothers coming in to visit me, and this was like the turning point for me. And you know, he was, you know, we he wanted me to, he was very stern about me going to rehab and this and that. And I just didn't, I was like, listen, I was like, screw rehab, I found fitness. And and whether I believed it or not, I had to believe in myself because if I didn't believe in it at all, I wouldn't have been, I won't be where it wouldn't have gotten started to be where I am today. And he started yelling at me. I remember just hanging up. I was like, well, how, I was like, how much worse can it be? I'm in jail right now. And I hung up the phone, walked out and walked into my, to my cellmate. I was like, let's fucking work out. And he was like, what the heck just happened to you? I was like, and I, and I just told him how my, my dad and I got in a fight. And he was like, you know, let that inspire you. And that's what like kept me going was like all the people that, the things that doubted me, all the stuff that I never mm -hmm. was able to accomplish, like fueled my, mm -hmm. my inspiration to change. It really did.
Yeah, your story is similar to other people I've had on the show who've been in, you know, uh, comparable predicaments from John McAvoy, Chris Schumacher, who was in on a murder charge, um, Charlie Engel, who would just run around the, you know, basically <laughs> running ultra marathons. <laughs> right. you know, like, and, and my sense is that when you're in an environment where you're stripped of, you know, your freedom and on some level your dignity, there's so little that you have control over, right? And and how you move your body throughout the day is something that you do have control over. And it's a way of maintaining that sense of self and, and saying, you know, you could take this from me, but you can't take that. Yeah, I mean, I had nothing else, nothing else to do. And, and that was the, one of the hardest parts, to be honest, was leaving. I cried when I left because I had no idea what was gonna happen. and. Mm-hmm. My when I was well, you had a community. It sounds like I mean, not only did you have this guy Eric, you had all these people cheering for you, and you know, if you ask somebody like Gabor Mate or Johan Hari about the root roots of addiction, you know, Johan famously always says like the opposite of of addiction isn't isn't sobriety, it's connection, right? right? And you develop this connection with these people in a in a way that's healthier from your boys that you're driving around, you know, like <laughs> yeah. in stone with. Oh yeah. And suddenly you're going to be extracted from that environment. Like, of course, I would, you know, I I would suspect that that was terrifying for somebody who's newly sober, who really doesn't know what to expect when they go back out into the world. Yeah, I mean, I just that was one of my biggest fears. Like, what am I going to do now without these people? What am I going to do? And I remember there was one night I cheated on my diet and my cellmate, he was always like, if you cheat on your diet, I'm punching you in the stomach. And I knew it was really doughy. And if he punched me in the stomach, I might end up in like the jail ER. Uh. <laughs> and so I never cheated, but there was one night I just, and somebody told on me. And I remember I hated it, but I needed it. And he was like, all right, Doug, you know the deal. You're either gonna run like th- uh, two miles or I'm punching you in the some stomach. Some other dude, like, <laughs> yeah. he ratted you out. Oh, yeah. I'm like, dude, what He's the heck? He's a prison rat. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I can't believe you snitched on me. He's like, dude, I'm doing it for, I'm help, just trying to help you uh-huh. out. And I remember writing my mom this letter when I was in jail and it was funny. I, I just was going through, she, um, the reason I say this is because it kind of brings some things into perspective is, you know, my mom and I, it was, she was the one that I, I always had just, I wish I hadn't done some of the things that I did because I, 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 really, I know I really hurt her. And she was always kind of, she was emotionally kind of timid from the divorce and obviously the MS and everything. And I was going through a file with her probably, it must've been six months, maybe, I mean, not even six months ago, maybe three or four months ago. And she's like, I found this in my house and it's a Doug jail. It was like a manila folder with like my, my uh, court documents in it. And it was some letters I had written her. And that one letter, which I completely forgot that I wrote her, was just talking about how much I'm changing while I'm in there. And that I don't, I, I just want her, her to be happy when I talk to her on the phone and that I'm not gonna let her down. Like all like stuff. I mean, I don't remember exactly what it said, but it was something of that nature. Mm-hmm. And then I look back at it now and I'm like, holy crap, like it really happened. And I remember writing those letters and, and not even really thinking that, things were gonna change. I had no idea because I knew that I got, I had to get out and I had to deal with stuff on my own. Then I had all this probation and I had to battle for the next five years of not failing a drug test. Because the judge was like, you know, if he said to me, he said, if I see you in my courtroom again, you're gonna be sharing a cell with Bubba. And I didn't, I knew I wouldn't last long with Bubba's Bubba. not Eric. No, <laughs> no. so, <laughs> um, and, 
And then so when the, a couple of days before I got out, you know, there was a lot of emotions between me and me and Eric. Cause I was like, what am I gonna do without you? He's like, you'll be fine. He's like, I said, how can I ever pay you back, right? And he said, just keep paying it forward. Keep helping other people and keep doing you. Like keep, and he gave me like a foundation. He gave me a workout plan that I still have framed in my place today. So I never forget where I came from that has like our, some of the original stuff he told me to do, whether it was like five or six sets of push-ups one day and the next day it was running three to five miles. And, but he had some, some words on there. He said, remember, you're no longer a fat ass again. I never have to be one again, like eat smart. Like it's, I'm, I'm not there, it's up to you. And Cause he's still in jail. I don't know where he's at now. I mean, him and I, we had, we'd stay, we actually worked out together a few times when he got out. Um, but I, I don't know what, I know he was kind of still in and out of some stuff. I don't know where he was, but um, like I dedicated my first book to him. If he ever called me, I would pick up the phone. Um, and I remember writing him a letter when I first got out and I lived with my grandparents and it was so cold. It was like, you know, in January and I wrote him a letter. I was like, it's cold out. I can't run outside. He's like, I train machines, not pussies. He said that to me in a letter or something like that. <laughs> I like that he still thinks he's your trainer. Yeah. He was like, you better yeah. go out and buy a pair of sweatpants. <coughs> and you know, that, those, that kind of, those kind of words don't speak to everybody. And I get that, but to me it did. Like it's just, mm. it was just what I needed to hear. Um, and him being hard on me, and for some reason, Just being honest, like yeah. you're, you're a fat ass, dude. Yeah. You're fat. What do you want? You know, what do you want? To, what do you want from me? Yeah, <laughs> like, he was like, and I, because I was, I was, I mean, I was wondering what, like, why can't I do it? Like, why can't he's like, you're fat. Like, you have a load of fat. You have no core strength. He's like, and, and, and like a lot of the lessons he taught me, and a lot of what about not giving up on myself and helping other people and unconditional love, were things I still carry on with me today that have kind of really influenced my recovery and and my relationships with other people. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation, a groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most, mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. 
Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. So you get released, you're a felon, right? You're young, you're a young guy. You got yeah. your whole life ahead of you. <laughs> yeah. But like, you know, it's got to be disorienting and confusing. Like, how am I gonna? What am I gonna do now? Yeah, I mean, I I had, I still had a lot of my same friends, and not that they were bad people, but they, I just couldn't, I couldn't jive with that lifestyle anymore. Yeah. And so I lived with my grandparents, and like they gave me the rules of. You know, you're gonna stay here. You can stay here rent free. We'll buy you the buy you your food. We'll give you money to go. You know, do whatever as long as we have receipts for what you're doing. And then you gotta, um, you know, clean up after yourself and have a job. But if like the minute you don't follow those rules, you're out, which is what I needed. And um, so I kept obviously after my my, my cellmate's first letter, I, I began to run. I got myself some sweatpants. I would work out in their basement doing push ups and jumping jacks and whatever else was part of the routine he gave me. And then when I built enough confidence in myself. I joined like a local Planet Fitness, but I had to look for a job because I, I had like 20 jobs by the time I went to jail. Like, I, I mean, I worked at restaurants, delivering pizza. I mean, I had quite the resume of somebody you don't want to hire because I lasted like a few months at each job right. where I'd be like, well, I can make $7 an hour, or go sell drugs. And ironically, after banging on the doors for months, checking the box that I'm a convicted felon, I got hired at a liquor store. Uh-huh. So to me, I was like, well, I mean, this is either gonna make me wanna like drink like crazy or it's gonna make me not wanna drink hardly at all. And it really like influenced, it showed me like obviously the other lifestyle that I had never really seen. I'd never really seen people like banging on the doors before a liquor store opened to get alcohol. Yeah. I'd never seen that. Uh, Cause alcohol was never my thing. It was just, I was, I didn't even like the taste of it really. I mean, I couldn't even drink beer. It was kind of gross. And, and so I worked there and while most would say it's a horrible decision, I mean, I somehow, they gave me a chance. I was open with them about my felony. I was able to, I showed up to work every day. I, I just took that as an opportunity of gratitude for somebody giving me uh-huh. a chance. I continued to, I made time to work out, whether it was before I went to work, after I went to work. So I was working 40 hours a week and I just built some great relationships with the people I worked with and ended up lasting um, about a year. It was, it was weird, Rich. Like my whole like outlook on work changed. Like every time I was going to work, before I went to jail, it was like, I can't wait to leave. Like I cannot wait to leave, or I don't wanna be here anymore. But here I was like, I just had this different mentality of like, all right, I'm here, I'm to work, I gotta do my job. And then when I'm done, I can leave. And I just, I don't know, I don't know what changed, but I guess it was the combination of me feeling better about myself. And also the fact that I had a new lifestyle that I thought was, I was embracing. And you know, within a few months after getting released, after I got the job, like Saturday nights became watching Food Network with my grandparents. Right, there's that thing when you're in the throes of addiction, you know, I went through a lot of this where it's like, you just, you feel trapped. Like if you're in a job, you're, you're, you're like a caged animal. Right. You just can't wait to leave because when you leave, then you can go use, right. right? And then when you're sober, that gets taken away and you have this mindset shift of uh, that goes from like what what can I you know what's the maximum that I can extract out of this experience for <laughs> right. myself in a very selfish way to what can I contribute right you know and the more you get into that kind of service oriented contribution mindset 
then shockingly, the more gratifying the experience is and the less you feel like a caged animal who wants to leave. Yeah, I completely agree. It was more like, yeah, you said like, how much am I getting paid for this job? Like, when can I come? When can I leave? How can I try and score drugs on my lunch break? I mean, uh-huh. I was working at a car wash having people stop through to buy drugs for me uh-huh. while I was working to now, you know, being- That's you know, some hustle. That's <laughs> some, some dumb hustle. <laughs> Cause this guy, my, my boss yeah. at the time came up to me. He's like, man, you realize this guy accused me of like, is, uh, of, of taking a pound of weed out of his car. He's like a pound, you know how much that is? And I'm like, yeah, I'm like thinking to myself, I have one in my trunk right now. Wow. But so working at the liquor store, I was able to to just, you know, people were starting to notice, like to, to react, respond to me differently. They're like, wow, you're so passionate, you're so happy. And it was just a complete shift in, in mindset. And I guess the help of me exercising just made it all better. Yeah. So why did you not, go to try to find community in, in AA or in 12 step? Um, I mean, I did go to one NA meeting when I was in jail, but just to solely get out of my jail. So it wasn't like I wanted to, to do anything with it. I just, I don't know. I, I didn't really, I didn't know anybody who went to AA. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like, I didn't, I didn't really know anybody. So I just, I kind of just thought, okay, I'm gonna work out, I'm gonna run, I'm gonna eat better. And if I can lose weight and feel better about myself, that'll make me not wanna like mask my insecurities with drugs anymore. And if I can just follow the rules of my, my grandparents said and the job I currently had in probation, that I wouldn't mess up anymore. So it wasn't that I didn't want, I just never, it was never really in front of me. Like yeah. I went to the, there was like mandatory outpatient classes I went to for like, I don't know, it was like eight weeks, once a week or something, I had to pee in a cup. Those are super depressing though. <laughs> yeah, <Right. laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh. So, I mean, there was that. Well, that's the weird thing with, with NA and NA and, and and 12 step that you know the anonymity is is part of the whole deal right so with that i mean there's there's benefits and advantages to that because if you're in there you have you know you can remain anonymous but at the same time it prevents the program from being known to somebody like yourself right who's like well i don't know anyone there and i don't even know where it is and you know and then you're just left to your own imagination about how horrible it probably is. And then you never go. Yeah, I mean, I didn't really have anybody I knew. I mean, I, I knew saw a few people that had tried to get sober and whatnot, but like, I really didn't know, I didn't know anybody. Yeah. Like I really, I didn't know. Like, and so I just kind of kept on the path of running and and then working out, which worked. I mean, I would my, my personality changed, my outlook on life changed, my passion for wanting to help other people was like greater than ever. And then it like, obviously it led me to wanting to be, to become a trainer mm-hmm. about a year and a half later to help other people, you know, use fitness to change their lives in the way that it changed mine. So it's been a little over a year, 10 or 11 years at this point. Yeah, I mean, I, I went to jail, um, sep- no, October 21st, 2008. I got released December 26, 2008. Yeah, so I mean, it's been, uh-huh. Almost, I mean, over ten years. I mean, I've had um, I went to jail on the day after my birthday. Yeah, that's right, because you're a Libra too, October right? October twentieth. Yeah, my birthday is the thirteenth. Oh, it is. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So a week after your birthday, <laughs> it's like my twenty-first <laughs> birthday. Yeah. It's supposed to be like celebratory. And never uh, haven't had a relapse. No, I mean, I've had some like drinks here and like here and like a glass of wine here, a glass of wine because. Uh-huh. You know, to me, like, and again, I didn't get involved in that twelve-step community. I know in the twelve-step community, it's you know, ap- complete apps, total abstinence. So, I, I, my understanding was, as long as I'm not doing the drugs I was abusing, like opiates and coke and pot, 
that I was good. And I never had a, like, honestly, like I, I could have a glass of wine and I, I, I might not drink for two years. I mean, there's been times mm-hmm. I've been drink, drank for years and I just mm-hmm. can take it or leave it. And, you know, I had a friend tell me who's um, in recovery, say sometimes kids, when they get sober at a young age, they're able later in life to have experience alcohol. In some cases, you know, drink here and nor there. And again, I don't, I mean, I don't know if it yeah, works. Yeah, that's dangerous for me. Yeah, no, you know, I know. I, well, there's a joke that I have with some of my friends, some of which like I've got, I have friends that are like 35 years sober, you know, they're like my age or in their forties, you know, they got sober super young and it's like, and I and I always joke with them. I like, oh, you could probably drink now. It'll be fine, you know. And they they laugh because they know, like in their heart of hearts, they know like they can't do that. If they do it, it's like game out. You know, like anything can happen. Or yeah. Whatever. Yeah. So certain people are wired that way. I mean, alcohol wasn't your drug of choice. It wasn't the entry for you to other things. And you know, I can't speak for anybody other than my own experience. I know for myself, like I can't. That option is off the table for me. But. God bless you, man. Well, and I think it's like, I look at why, if I'm like, if I come home and I'm like stressed and I'm start drinking, like I've never really gotten to Uh that. It's more like if I'm out like on a date or if I'm out like social, like something like social, which I mean, but, and I I honestly don't do it that much. I mean, I could probably count the amount of drinks I've had on my one hand in the last few years. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. just, Mm -hmm. but I mean, I'm very open about it. And unless like, you know, I was, you know, I'm, when I used to, one of my clients was a, a treatment center and I would train the patients there. It was a 12 step program. And, you know, I would never be open about that with them unless, I mean, if they asked me, I wouldn't lie, but I didn't want people getting the idea that they can do that too, because my walk is my walk. Right. I mean, I just have built in different ways to manage my stress today than I did back then. And, you know, if it ever became an issue, then I would have to look at what I'm doing. But right now it's, you know, it works for the time being. So what are the ways in which you manage your stress outside of just working out? Well, I mean, I think you know spirituality has been big for me. I mean, I mean I'm a Christian, I don't jam it down people's throats because I didn't like it being jammed down my throat. And you know, I didn't always believe in God because I was like if God's real and God's about love, why am I incarcerated? Why am I addicted to drugs? Why this? Why that? Why me? Why me? Me me. And I didn't believe any. I, and then but then I hit that point you know, several years into my recovery where I thought just working out, making good money would make, would be sustainably happy. And you surely get humbled at like, uh-huh. and then my, one of my mentors, um, Todd Durkin, who's a trainer in San Diego was like, Doug, you need like some spirituality and like whatever it is, whatever works for you. Right. And, and so one of my clients was, a was a pastor and he's like, you know, you're going to start coming to church with me. It's a non-denominator. It's like, dude, I'm on the highway to hell. I'm going through hell for putting you through this workout and there's no way. And, you know, finally I hit that point where I needed that thing, that calling and I went and called my client. I was like, I need to like come to church. And and that was almost five years ago. And but what was that moment? Like why then? Like what was going on? I mean, I, I just had gotten, you know, nothing was work. Like nothing in my personal life was like work, working as far as like relate, like, 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 like uh, female relationships and, I was just having a lot of doubts about myself, a lot of like, you know, resentments um, towards like the choices I had made and being a former convicted felon and all this stuff that I just couldn't deal with. And I, uh, and then also like the part of me was like kept looking back and being like, man, like this guy had this crazy story that people tell me, like I couldn't have done it myself. Like, and so everything I was, I came back from Disney World from a business retreat. And I remember just crying at the retreat because I was at a business, like a fitness um, 
uh, retreat. We focus on like personal and business development. And I couldn't like wrap my head around why I was like super fit, making good money and why I still wasn't completely happy. And uh-huh. then the spirituality nudge kept coming from some of my peers and again, and I just thought I should just, oh, I got nothing to lose, I'll try it. And like the same, like the same, like when I went to the church for the first time and like prayed with my client, the same feel, like same monkey that came off my back with the pot, the opiates, and then like the, the fitness part came off my back in a deeper level, like that I can't even explain. Like I called my mom like for the first time like ever, like and authentically apologized to her when I walked out of there. Mm. And I felt like there was something, there was a bigger reason for me to be alive. And at this point I'm a trainer. So I'm like, you can't make up that fitness saved my, a guy used fitness to help save my life in jail. And now I'm helping other people use fitness to save their lives. I was like, you can't just, I can't do that myself. And I slowly began to think like, I might not be happy with the choices that I made, but God was. And for me, it works. And it's just, it really helped me. And then, you know, if you wanna dive into that a little bit more, we can. But I think also having mentors in my life, people that have walked the walk a bit deeper. I started getting involved in like mastermind programs and mm-hmm. personal development stuff when I was like 22 years old. So who were your guys in that regard? I mean, like Todd Durkin, the guy in San Diego. And I started following like Gary V, <laughs> who I actually got to meet Gary yeah. for the first time like a few few weeks ago. I was up at Vayner Media, and I like, oh, you were cool. Yeah, for a, um, an interview on one of his podcasts, mm-hmm. not his, but um. Like his new lifestyle brand, one thirty-seven p.m. Oh and, yeah, one thirty-seven. And um, and I was like, I was like, I was like wondering, I was like asking the guy who was in, I was like, is Gary here? I was like, I would love them. Like I love uh-huh. Gary. Like I was like, I just, I just love. And he's like, I don't know. He's always running around. And I literally like go in the bathroom, washing my hands. And you know how Gary's got that distinct voice. And uh-huh. I'm like, Gary V. I'm like, oh my god. And I go I'm like sh- shake his hand. Like, we're in the bathroom, and he's like, I'm like, can we please get a picture together? And uh-huh. I was like, and then he started talking to me, and and it was really cool. Like that. A guy like him, who you know, obviously, I'm sure gets bothered by tons of people. It was super authentic when I saw him, like in his his realm. He's the he's exactly uh, who you want him to be when the camera's not on. Like my experience with him is super positive, and every time I've bumped into him or seen him, he could not be nicer or more kind or more generous. Like everything that he preaches, he practices in his own life. Yeah, and it's, it was really cool to see that, you know, with him because you get sometimes you meet these guys, some of these guys, and they're like totally different, internally to- turns you off. And then obviously following like guys like Tony Robbins and um, it, I mean other. Like, I'm trying to think of who else. I, I mean, when I really first got um, into recovery, I started reading like fitness magazines too, which which helped me like figure out how to eat. And I mean, even though now I look back, I can't believe I read some of the stuff. Like Muscle and Fitness or Arnold Schwarzenegger's like Book of Bodybuilding was like the first book I read, um, and uh, but I just I, and also my client a lot of my clients were either like lawyers or they were like CPAs or financial planners and they were all like pretty successful so I was always like picking their brain and be like well how did you do it and they, I was always like a listener and absorbed information mm-hmm. and and I just always knew that I never had the answer and if I was the smartest person in the room I needed to get into different rooms and so just. I just, I don't know, I got really, I guess, lucky in the sense that I just jumped on these opportunities to meet people and and network and just be like, hey, how can I help you? What can I do for you? Like, what can I, I mean, and just see where stuff leads. Well, it sounds like you had a willingness to grow and to learn and to expand and you sought out these people, whether virtually or in person for guidance and counsel that you clearly, you know, lacked in your own life. Um, And at the same time, you invested in, you know, a spiritual program for yourself. And I would imagine you you probably look back on 
that jail experience now and, and everything that you endured to get to where you are at this point with a level of gratitude that, that you, you didn't expect to have, right? Well, yeah, I mean, if you would ask me now if I would have cried when I left jail, there was been like, well, cried, like, yeah. well, like maybe enjoy. But I was, cry, I was cried of like, I was nervous because I didn't want to leave. And it was, I needed that experience. I needed that. And I don't, you know, I, I don't know where my spiritual awakening actually was. I mean, I know I've had probably had several in my life, um, but being in jail was definitely the big one because I just, all the masks I've been putting on myself came off at once. And it was like, okay, Doug, here you are. You're a fat ass. You've gotten yourself in jail. Um, you can't do what you want, see what you want you know, go where you want or talk to who you want. Like, what are you gonna do about it? Mm -hmm. What was your greatest aspiration for your life when you were driving around, you know, scamming French fries and delivering pizzas and just getting stoned? Like, I mean, I really wanted to be like either in the, like I, I wanted to either be in the FBI or be um, like a sports broadcaster for ESPN. Uh -huh. <laughs> and And that was, but, I, that those are two of my things. And, you know, I, I went from also, I wanted to obviously be a lawyer, an accountant, but, and then, I mean, I narrowed it down. I wanted to be in the FBI and, um, or be on ESPN. And obviously when I got arrested, I was like, well, there goes the FBI. No, no FBI, <laughs> no. unless you're going to be some kind of informant, you know, <laughs> off the books. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't want to be doing that either. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's funny though, because, you know, 10 years might seem like a long time, but it's actually not that long. And and, and I, when I think of you kind of driving around with one headlight, you know, just a disaster to like being on the Today Show and like going to VaynerMedia, like you've got a lot of press for the stuff that you've done. Like you're kind of a name who's out there, who's learned how to own your story and tell it in a certain way. And, and, and you know, clearly for the sake of inspiring other people and, motivating other people to take better control of their lives. I mean, you know, in a certain respect, you you're you're becoming that like be, that lighthouse and that beacon of light for people that you sought out in your own time of need. Yeah, I mean, I'm just on a I'm just trying to help people. I mean, I don't have any like other mission behind behind it and it's like I just I just really want to use my story just I mean, there's bits there's bits and pieces that can relate whether it's how you struggle with mental illness illness and how you cope with that or whether it's you know a mom listening who's got a kid right now who just started smoking pot and like oh well, what do I do because you know my kids tell me pot's legal here and you know and I see him like not doing his homework for three weeks in a row or if it's just somebody who like doesn't think they can ever get started in taking care of their body like I was that person like I was the guy you know I mean it wasn't yo-yo-yo dieting but I would like eat like once a day and it would be like a whole cheesesteak pizza and fries and I thought that was like cool, like that was like yeah. delicious. And then like as I look back now and as I've experienced with almost every, you know, diet, I mean, I hate, I don't really like that word, but lifestyle, you can just, I'm like, wow, well, it's just funny how cheesesteaks and pizza aren't part of any of these other, you know, equations when it comes to how to eat. Yeah. What's interesting about your story is, is it, it um, it's like the intersection of so many things that are like, gone off the rails in our society from our obsession with success and comfort and luxury. Like, oh, I'm, you know, a good life is a life of, you know, getting a good paycheck and having a nice car and having a job that people approve of. 
um, you kind of playing that out on some level and seeing like, I'm not, I'm not happy with that to this, you know, mental health crisis that we find ourselves in where more people are depressed or suffering some, from some form of anxiety or, you know, suicidal ideation or PTSD or what have you. I mean, it's, flagrant and everywhere we look to the opioid crisis to, you know, all of these problems that we're kind of suffering from culturally, you're like this, you know, test tube case study, (laughs) you know, who kind of came out the other side, but can speak to all of these issues as somebody who's endured them. Yeah, I mean, and it's, it's been tough. I mean, to say that it's been an easy road. I mean, the amount of energy it's probably taken just to kind of maintain all this, it's been, it's hard because, you know, I'm so used to, you know, having to always watch my back. I mean, being on like probation for five years, I mean, it was definitely tough and not not you know, not failing drug tests and having the felony come off my record was was great. But having that like on your shoulders, like it correlates into like having you to having you for you to have you to watch your back in other areas of your life. And um, but if I can just be a a beacon or an inspiration of hope to people that hear my story and that know that like I'm just here to just here, just here to help people. It's not like I'm trying to sell any programs. I mean, I'm just I'm honestly like float like floating my own bill, paying for all the stuff myself yeah. to travel just to, to help other people. Like that's what it's about for me. I mean, it's just about if I can if the, the, the emails I get or the texts I get from people who see this or listen to that. They're like, oh my gosh, like I needed this right now. Like I needed to hear your story and. I mean, to me, that's what life's about, paying it forward. What do you think is the difference between your experience and the experience of the untold thousands of other oxy addicts out there who get pulled over and arrested and go to jail and never change their ways? Like, why were you able to, you know, grab onto this lifeline and and make these changes to become this person who's like writing books and, (laughs) you know, doing podcasts and, you know, like, it's it's an amazing trajectory. Yeah, I mean, other than right place, right time. I mean, and I, as I as I look back, I mean, one of my biggest motivators for believing in God wasn't like seeing this this person, right? It was just looking at where my life was to where it is now, and being like, yeah. I, I can't do that myself. And if I the moment I continue to the moment I to try to say that I did this myself is the moment I lose because then my ego ego is the enemy, right? Ego is one, and and I think it also came back to taking responsibility. I mean, like I said, my cellmate being really point blank to me, like doesn't resonate in the way it does for, might not resonate in, with, with many, but he said to me, he's like, you can be a man or you can be a bitch. That's what he said to me when I got in when I got in there. And he's like, you can be a man and take responsibility for yourself. Know that you got yourself here. No matter who you want to blame, no matter who did this, you got yourself here. And it's up to you to change. Or you can be a bitch and go cry in the corner, sulk in your sorrows and blame everybody else like most people will do. And I just kind of took that and, and I don't, I don't want to say ran with it, but I just kind of did it. And I was just on such a mission to, to, to never you know, give up and to know that life was going to be better for me if I did these things. And if I didn't do these things, I was going to fail. And I had no shot at all. But I knew if I did these things, I had a shot. And slowly, you know, it was like things started to, to fall into place and I mean, I think I just, I got lucky in a way, but I, I think I was just so determined, Rich, to change. I really was. Well, divine providence placed this guy, Eric, in your path, <laughs> yeah. you know? And, and I would imagine you look at that with a sense of, of not just gratitude, but 
but in a way that instills your life with faith. Cause you couldn't have predicted that. That changes the course. I mean, had had that guy not been there and it had just been a bunch of dudes who like right. couldn't care less about you, like where would your life be right now? I mean, you couldn't even imagine, right? I mean, I wouldn't have been working out for sure. Yeah. So, you know, what is that if not you know, I would I choose, I guess I could say I choose to look at that as, you know, uh an act of of an act of God, you know, it doesn't have to be, the word God can be replaced for whatever spiritual turn of phrase yeah. feels comfortable for you, but there's so much beauty and poetry and elegance in that. Yeah, I mean, I think it just, no matter what spirituality you believe in, if you believe in it or not, to me, it was just his willingness to help me with no strings attached, unconditional love, right? and and then paying it forward and then just, it was he was like an angel to me at that mm -hmm. time when I needed him and him not letting me give up. Cause he could have easily been like, dude, you're a pain in my ass. You bitch way too much, you whine, like get away from me. Right. Like why why am I gonna waste my time? But he didn't, get, he didn't let me quit. And even when I got out of jail, I mean, he didn't have to write me back, but he did. And you know, he, once I was trying to bail out in a way, he was like, what the heck did I teach you when you were incarcerated? Like go get yourself a pair of sweatpants and stop being a wuss. And, and so like though the, that, the kind of like just that unconditional love, I didn't want to let that guy down because I was like, I just, I don't know why, but I was like, if I let this guy down, like my life's over mm -hmm. because like I have this golden opportunity. And when the felony came off, I just, you know, everyone was like, I remember people in court crying and I'm just standing there. I didn't really understand what had really happened. I mean, it's just so, it was so euphoric, but I mean, it was cool to be able to go back to court to see the judge and him look at me in a positive way and see the judicial system, which many of us have come to to hate when it comes to the way people treat drug offenders to actually do some good for once. Yeah, this is something that, that John McAvoy talks about a lot, the power of, the redemptive power of sport. And he's essentially devoted a huge part of his life to trying to reform the prison system to instill it with sports related activities and programs to rehabilitate the population and you're you know a similar example of that rehabilitative power of taking control of your your fitness yeah i mean it's it's just so important for the mind i mean just to to feel better about yourself and having that dedication and knowing okay i got to do this activity at 7am whether it's working out or going outside and playing basketball. And then like the, you know, the, the endorphin rush that you get and just being able to like get uncomfortable or get comfortable being uncomfortable, which in recovery, it's uncomfortable a lot of times, right? Uh -huh. You lose a job, you get a divorce, you get somebody who chastises you on social media, whatever it is that makes you uncomfortable, you got to deal with it in a healthy, in a healthy way, well, right? The first part of getting sober is the experience of being about as uncomfortable as you can possibly be, right. like weathering a detox. And what you learn from that is that you can't short circuit it. No. Like I'm sure if they'd allowed you to get the Suboxone in there, it might've been a little bit easier, but if it was too easy, maybe you would have gone back. You right. know what I mean? There's, 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 there's beauty in that suffering because with that comes the lesson. And if you, short, if you try to short circuit that, um, you're missing out on what is trying to be taught to you, right? And I think when you can appreciate the difficulty of weathering an experience like that, it allows you to see 
that those experiences are necessary <laughs> in order to grow. And ultimately they, they provide the foundation for you to be a happier, more purposeful person. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly kind of what it did for me is like getting into recovery, starting to work out got me uncomfortable, but it also led me into meeting other people along the way and then meeting um, people that challenged me to write books. I mean, I didn't wanna write my first book, uh -huh. but you know, people were like, you got this crazy story, why don't you write a book? And I was like, I barely graduated high school. Like, what do I know about writing? And then like, you know, and then I went to write it and then I, I wrote it and then people were like, oh, this is pretty good. And I'm like, oh, it, is it? Uh -huh. Like, <laughs> and, and, and then, so then that led me to, to meet some other people and, and challenge myself more and then be inspired to like, you know, write this next book where the, 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 my newest book that comes out in March right. to, to really help other people. And I've just met some, so many cool people and just following people like, you know, along the way that just inspire the heck out of me with their recovery. And, you know, reading your book was awesome. And just, I was, there was a lot of things I related to there with, you know, the, what, what happened to you in school. And then, you know, obviously with getting sober and then with the, the role fitness played in your life. And to be honest, it was funny. And I delivered pizza too in hey, Maryland. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, well, you know, what's funny <laughs> is you were doing that. I was reading about you doing the Epic Five and that point where you like blacked out and you didn't remember, you know, and you didn't know if you were gonna go on. And then like Jason was like, come uh -huh. on, we're running this marathon. I was hiking up. I've never really hiked a mountain before. And the other day I was in Arizona with my buddy, uh, was it? Thursday or Friday, we were hiking and uh, I was like, I was smoked. And then I just, in my mind, I was just like thinking about you and the Epic Five. Uh -huh. I'm like, dude, I can't, I'm a complete wuss right now compared to what Rich was doing. <laughs> got like, you up the hill. Yeah, got Good. me up the hill. <laughs> awesome. Um, so tell me about the new book, The Heart of Recovery. So this comes out in March. And these are like sort of case studies of, of interviewing a bunch of people who've turned their lives around in, in sobriety. Yeah, so I mean, being somebody who's been in recovery for um, you know a little over a decade, mm -hmm. I just I gotten to the point where I was like, people were like, "Oh, how'd you get sober without going to AA?" And I was like, "Well, I did this, this, and that." And you know, I just um, I, I I was you know I knew that I had a problem with the drugs I was abusing. I couldn't do it. Uh -huh. I knew I had I believed in God and I had made a, like amends for them. Like the, I mean, I don't have any anger towards like my family, but I you know I communicated with them and. Um, and I have, you know, people I call when I'm in trouble, like sponsors, if you will. And, and so I just knew I was doing very similar things. And I just saw the epidemic obviously not getting any better and realizing that people getting into recovery, they're not healthy. Like there's people that are still smoking tons of cigarettes or eating unhealthy. And I'm like, who, how can I correlate a message to help people get better? So I decided that I wanted to write like an interview style book where I interviewed like, you know, 50 of the most, of, the, of some of the most inspiring people that are in recovery about how they did it, like what their workout routines were mm -hmm. like, what kind of people they hung out with, what their, what their view on spirituality was, and almost like, you know, what they do on a day-to-day -day basis to, to thrive in recovery. And I wanted a, a vast diverse group of people from people who are celebrities to people who aren't, to people just to show that whether you're worth 50 million or $50, like recovery and addiction doesn't discriminate. You still gotta work a program but just work what works for you. And while there's a lot of people in there that are 12 step people and it's definitely worked for them, there's people in there that aren't and it's worked for them. And, you know, I just think we kind of need to stop putting, thinking it's like a one size fits all approach because, you know, I think if it was, I think we wouldn't be where we're at today. I mean, there's so many other issues that go into it. 
Yeah, well, I mean, we're, we're you know, the, the fact that the two of us are sitting here, you know, who both have leveraged fitness for personal growth and in our own unique ways, we've, we've also had different paths in sobriety, you know, and like, I, 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 I have no judgment on how you got sober and stay sober. My path's a little bit different, but I think it does speak to the fact that like, yeah, I mean, I know it works for me, but that doesn't mean it's a one size fits fits all thing. And I appreciate the fact that you would like, you know, kind of create a catalog of all these different perspectives for for, you know, somebody to be able to turn to and and find, you know, oh, of all of these, here's the one that I can identify with. So maybe I'll model my path after this person. Yeah, and there's different stories in there. There's some names people recognize, some don't, but I think it's like I really wanted to include a lot of names that people don't recognize because mm-hmm. those are the names that don't really get talked about and you know, just different people's perspectives on their workout routines yeah. to their views on spiritual, they're all different. All the personalities are different just so people can pick and choose what they want to nibble on and like, you know, it's 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 laid out so people can just read a story at a time. There's a table of contents that, that helps people kind of yeah. journal through. I mean, there's some there's some really funny stories in there and there's some, you read some about some people that you're like, man, how the heck did they get through it? And um, I met some amazing people along along the way and, you know, just connected with some some really cool people that I still have relationships with now just because I was like, it was it was weird, like reaching out to the publicists and man, I, I had no experience of doing it all, uh-huh. like none. They're like, who are you? And I'm like, oh, I'm Doug Bobes, I'm a trainer in Maryland. They're like, why are you calling? Yeah. You know, and I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm writing a book. And they're like, well, who's your publisher? And I'm like, ah, I mean, I, I just wanted to write the book. And I was just like, I just I had to seriously hustle like crazy because I to to get this done because I nobody knew me. Yeah. I and I didn't have like a I mean I some self-publishing. I didn't have a big publisher, but I just knew that I wanted to write the book and I wanted to, to help people. And I think there's a lot of people that just respected that I was nobody. And like, wow, you're doing this on like your own time. I'm not affiliated with it. I'm not working for a treatment center. I don't, you know, I, I'm just, this is just me. I'm and, just paging through the book. Yeah. And, uh, I, I, there's a lot of people in here that I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not everyone. I mean, some of these names I don't know, but there's like, some of it is like, oh, this is a little bit of a who's who of LAAA. <laughs> like yeah. Some of the names in here. I was like, oh, Amy must've turned you onto that person. Well, I mean, I, there were certain people I just, they were like, how can I help you? I was like, and I would be honest, I'd be like, I mean, if you, I was like, if you know anybody, it would be right, the open. Would it, right. They would do it. That's not gonna like ask me a million questions. It's like gonna, you know, that's gonna be open to the eleventh tradition, uh-huh. which I know is big in L.A. Um, I said, just you know, to turn me to them, and I, I was thankful that a lot of people helped me out, and I also just was persistent, like because I knew I had new people were busy, uh-huh. and I, once I got somebody on the phone, it was a little easier because they could hear my voice. I would share my story, and it wasn't like I was just that other person like reaching out to them for, for something. It was like okay, like it seems legitimate what you want to do because, you know, at first I wanted to get as many celebrities as I could. And then I realized like, A, it's really, really hard me being nobody. And B, like I wanted to get like a lot of stories in there too that nobody knows because those are the stories that people can, like everyday people can, they're not going to be able to relate to people who can afford to put themselves to rehab a bunch or, or, I mean, they can in some ways, but, you know, it's the everyday person that's working like a two jobs and has kids that you know can't get through it. What did you learn from this experience? What what what's surprising? What surprised you? I mean, I, I just think that you know, Rich. There's a lot of different themes in there. There's a lot of different paths, but there's a lot of commonalities too. I mean, the people in there, for the most part. I mean, I would say. I mean, I would like. To, I mean, I was probably. I'd say all. They all like. Um, you know, the relationships changed for the better when they got into recovery. 
Um, they hang out with people that bring the best out in them. They have a workout routine that that works that works for them. Or if they're not currently working out because of injury or something, they know the importance of it. They value it, and they and they all like kind of know what they need to do every day to to kind of stay on top of things. And and they were all like really interesting to talk to. Like it was all like there were so many people just willing to do it because they wanted to be part of it. But you know, and I also learned like how there's a lot of politics, I guess, in recovery too. Um, and there's a lot of gatekeepers and certain things, which I mean, I wasn't aware of because I'm in the fitness industry. So that kind of was eye-opening to me and I didn't, I didn't know. And it was, it was hard to fight through, but I guess I, I realized it's just what it is. So, I mean, that was a big learning experience was like, just because you're calling a manager or a publicist of somebody doesn't mean they're gonna give you an interview. Right. It's really hard, you know, and a lot of people want these interviews. And I just, like, I didn't know because I'd never been through this process before. All I knew was fitness. I mean, I didn't know, I, I mean, but by the by the grace of God, I was able to get some of the interviews I got in there just by yeah. help of other people. And, you know, some I got on my own through publicists, but I mean, it was tough. Well, one thing I'm pretty sure nobody said to you is this. When I got sober, I thought that my life would be over and that it would just be boring from then on out. And they were right. It was boring. <laughs> right. <laughs> no. It's like, no, your life gets better. It you does. Know? You think that you're going to be resigned to this milk toast existence and and you know there'll be no more high highs and and low lows and you know on some on some level yes of course you're evening things out but on the whole like i have been privy to witnessing lives so dramatically changed as a result of getting sober that it's 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 almost beyond what is believable yeah i mean I mean, it, lives definitely changed for the better. And the, for people, I mean, there's a lot of people like we were saying, you know, earlier that they're like, I don't, my life's not gonna be any better, but it does get better. I mean, you are able to, to hold a job, your relationships do improve. The way you feel about yourself is better because you don't have that like weight weighing you down anymore. And and I think, you know, you are able to do some work on yourself. Like getting into recovery is like a huge step in working on yourself, which a lot of people don't don't really do anymore, whether they're in recovery or not. And I think- you know, just showing that you actually love yourself enough to take a chance, put the drugs down, put the alcohol down and try to work something that will help you lead you in the, in the right direction, you know? With the clients that you work with, what's the difference between those that actually make strides and those that don't? Um, I think the ones that, that, that really make the strides are the ones that like are just so like persistent and dedicated and they put it in their schedule as like an appointment. Like it's like they're it's like part of their day. Like they know it's like a doctor's appointment. They're not missing a workout. And they're just, they're just wired that way. They're driven and they have seen, so, I mean, I think a lot of it, it just like in recovery, like when you're training somebody, like when you start to see some success, it snowballs and helps you really keep your eye on the prize and keep going towards the, yeah. the bigger goals. And you know, the ones, um, they just, they don't give up. It's that sheer determination and that will to to win and just you know follow instructions and if I say hey you know don't eat this or lay off this or hey you got to exercise three to four times a week the people that do that they, it works like and the people that don't it, it doesn't I mean it's just <laughs> it's gotta, come on it's got to be there's got to be a better answer than that no there's I mean no. yeah no I know you know and you know what I mean like people always they want like a magic pill or, or this I'm like listen like if you do what I say and you work out three to five times a week and you keep your calories in check. I mean, you will lose weight. Like that's just, I mean, unless you have some 
you know, metabolic disease or diabetes, whatever, something that's uncontrollable, but for the most general population, you will. I mean. Yeah. All right, so I'm at home in my mom's basement. <laughs> I'm listening to this podcast. <laughs> I'm smoking too many blunts. I'm hitting, you know, Wendy's a little too often. I know I need to like work out a little bit. Maybe I should lay off the weed and maybe not go out with my buddies so much. But like, I don't know, man, it's not that bad. Like, how do you connect with that person? Like, how do you jumpstart somebody who's kind of in that place where, yeah, it's not going in a good direction, but they're not like going to jail. Right. You know, they're not getting pulled over with one headlight. It hasn't hit a flashpoint in that way. But this is a person who, you know, could benefit from <laughs> making, making a few lifestyle changes. I mean, I think it's just asking them some questions, asking them, are you happy with the way your life is? And like, honestly, are you happy? Like, and then, you know, some people will be like, yeah, I'm happy. I'm like, so you're telling me sitting in your mom's basement when you're 35 years old, smoking blunts, you know, listening to Tupac and eating cheeseburgers makes you happy every day, which there's nothing wrong with Tupac, by the way. But, and then like, you just start to un unlayer things, right? And then like, you're able to ask them some tough questions. And again, you gotta build a relationship. I mean, I build a relationship with some of these people that you talk to. I mean, you can't just walk in and say stuff like that, but you just kind of come at them from a loving place and just show that you authentically care and be like, well, you know, what if I told you that if we went for a 20 minute walk that you might feel a little bit better. And, um, and then you just kind of like, they might be like, nah, I'm not gonna feel it. I'm like, why don't you just try it? Like, what do you have to lose, right? And they try it and nine times out of 10, they're gonna feel better, right? As long as they, you know, don't have any injuries or anything. And then you just kind of build steps off of that. I mean, I think it's just like, you know, the 12 steps, right? You just accomplish one thing and then you just keep going and keep layering things on top of it. Momentum is so important. Yeah, and, yeah. I, think, and I think a lot of times these kids or people who however old they are that they just don't know any other way. So like they've they've been taught that whatever way um, they're doing is the only way, whether it's their friends around them, whether it's what they listen to or what they watch and just being able to show them there is another path and whatever that path looks like. I mean, it's gotta come out of like love and care. You don't wanna, I would never go in and just start talking down to a kid, but I would definitely ask him some tough questions because it allows him to, to have some open dialogue to be able to answer in an honest way, hopefully, on how he feels about his life. And, you know, because you get to start to get into, to, to unwrap, peel the onion back a little bit. And then so sure enough, this a kid tells you, oh man, I'm really not happy. Like, you know, tell you the truth. Like I broke up with my girlfriend a year ago and I haven't been able to, you know, get over it. And I've been in my parents' basement because I lost my job six months ago and I can't afford to eat healthy. So I eat Wendy's and I smoke weed because I don't want to kill myself. I mean, you, you hear some deep stuff sometimes yeah. when you peel the onion back. It's not always what it appears, and that's why I say go in and you just ask them. Start you just ask some tough questions, and hopefully, if they're at a spot where they're willing to like, to answer, you can really you can really get some work done. Yeah, lead with empathy, and it's you know you coming from where you've come from, you can create that bridge probably a lot easier than most people. Well, yeah, being able to relate to them. I mean, relatability is is the spice of life, I think, and on many things, if not all, and just being able to be like, listen, like. I mean, I, and I also would just say, like, listen, if you if you think I don't know everything, I, I but I know some things, and I know I get where you're at. I know I was the kid who was suicidal, was hopeless, was slinging drugs, you know, left and right, and eating, you know, fast food all the time, and I, I had no hope. But if it wasn't for somebody helping me 
you know, find a new path, I wouldn't be where I am today. And I'm just trying to do the same for you. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's the person who's willing to help, but it's also timing. Yeah. You know, that person showed up at a moment where you actually had the willingness to, you know, take the lifeline. Had you been had that guy come across your path a year earlier, you might have told him to fuck off. Yeah, I mean, you I, know what I mean. So, <laughs> yeah, it's again, it goes back to that that kind of divine providence. Yeah, and timings and timing is everything, and and so I just you know, and I think that my cellmate he he didn't come at me like you need to change. He was just like, come on, like he just kept nudging me, mm-hmm. kept like tapping me on the shoulder. Kind of like my client who wanted me to come to church. He didn't like wasn't like you need to come to church. You're going to hell. He was like. You know, if you want to come to church, you're more than welcome. We can go to Chipotle afterwards. I was like, ah, I don't know what eat Chipotle, but and then you know, he just kept being like, are you are you sure? Are you sure? And then finally, when I was ready, he hadn't pushed me away. He had just gently tapped me that I was able to be like, all right, well, let me try this thing out. And that's the same way with a lot of these kids. Like, I don't lead with, you better stop doing drugs. I lead with questions, and I lead with, you know. I don't have all the answers and I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm not your father, but this is my story. And I was your age not long ago. And I'm here to tell you that there's a better way out if you're willing to meet me there. Mm-hmm. What do you think is the thing that holds most people back? Uh, I mean, I think there's many, but I think one is just, they just don't believe in themselves. And when stuff gets hard, they quit because life does get hard. I mean, for, for me to say life gets easy when you stop using drugs is, it's, it just couldn't be far, far <laughs> from the truth, but you know they, they just don't see a better way. And when they 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 they, they want to get better, and then you know the slightest thing will happen, and they'll be like, "Oh fuck this! Like my life's not better. Like I've only I've stopped using drugs two only two days, you know." And they want they want everything to happen like right mm-hmm. now. And then you know also just like their their environment. I think kids, like I was saying earlier, part of the problem is the pot, right? I think in a lot of cases, right. In many, but also the the like environment of like that's what all you do is ride around and smoke pot with your friends is like a huge problem because then like you're leaving your community, right? We talked about the importance of community, and then you're all of a sudden being forced to leave that community and go somewhere else where kids now being in the age of social media where we've you know the ability of having face to face interaction is slowly fading, it's hard for them to meet new friends. So it's better in their minds to go back and hang out with the same friends and try to maybe not smoke pot. But of course, we know that if you do that long enough, the odds, the odds are against you that you'll stay away from it. And it's hard, it's hard to yeah. be 15, 16, 17 years old. Um, you know, and when you create community around something like smoking pot, um, it's tough to break out of that. You know, your social life is everything. And you know, in a social media culture where everyone's being judged, you know, behind <laughs> their back and to their face, um, you know, through Instagram and Snapchat and the like, uh, the the levels of anxiety and stress that people in, in this age bracket are experiencing, I think are unprecedented. And I think that's contributing to more and more um, checking out and drug use. I mean, yeah, I mean, I watched, um... Simon Sinek was on Tom Bilyeu's impact mm-hmm. theory or health theory years ago talking about giving the kid a cell phone at at a young age was like, I, th- I mean, I think he compared it to alcohol or something, but he was just saying how kids can, they can, if they're depressed, they can just check out and go to their phones, right? And I think, you know, we're seeing that a lot now with kids on Snapchat and Instagram and, and in a matter of seconds, kids can get jealous, 
envious, competitive, comparative, however you want to call it, by just pulling out their phone, looking on Instagram. Soaking adults. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. 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 <laughs> no, I know. Try, yeah. But, you know, and so you can just see, like, wow, that person has a better body, or man, that person just bought a jet or a new car. Or, that or all those people that I thought were my friends are now at a party that I'm not at. Right. And they told me they were doing something else. Right. Yeah. And that's, like, that's hard for kids. And that's like a way of like, I mean, one of my clients is telling me like a way of bullying now is for that to happen. That very reason they put all these, they put a picture up of all these kids and they don't tag the one person who wasn't there or, you know, what in the, in the picture and the kid sees it and they're like, you know, what the heck? And it's for everybody to see. And and as much as technology is great, and I, I, I think it can be an awesome tool. I think so many people, like you said, we, we use it as, as ways to compete with people. And, um, but I think there's, I mean, there's a, there's a, there's obviously silver lining and everything. And that's why there's people, you know, like like you and others that, you know, have a strong influence and are able to be authentic and genuine and show how you can use social media in a positive way and not in a way to tear other people down and bully people or, you know, be a snake oil salesman, which mm -hmm. there's a lot of that too, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And it's hard, uh, it's hard to divine, you know, fact from fiction and kind of find your true north through all of this. And when you're young and impressionable and insecure and afraid, yeah. <laughs> you know, you're, you're cannon fodder for, you know, being manipulated and, and um, you know, all the sort of darker sides of what social media is presenting right now. Yeah, and you just don't know where it's gonna head and you don't know what angle it's gonna take, but I mean, it's not, I don't think it's going away. So how can kids and adults and everybody else affected by it, you know, manage it? And I think it's the tools because, I mean, for people to say they're never going to check Instagram again or whatever, I mean, they're they're not telling the truth. I mean, at least I'm not. I mean, I'm, yeah, it's part of our it's part of our lives. And I think if you're a young person, you know, the answer isn't no cell phone. Like this is the vocabulary of how this generation communicates. Like you can't deprive them of becoming. Um, you know, proficient in that language, but there has to be boundaries and there has to be analog you know, <laughs> yeah. experiences to counterbalance that, um, to craft healthy sense of self-esteem and purpose um, that isn't reliant upon the reactionary, you know, proclivities of some, you know, bunch of teenagers who are, you know, all swirling with crazy hormones that are, you know, making them do things that, you know, when they're 30, they'll regret. Yeah, and I just think it goes back to how are we dealing with the, the stressors and the thing that bug us out. I mean, and if we get if we get bugged out on Instagram or Facebook by some, something somebody says, something we saw, I mean, how can we manage that stress in a healthy way? And it's mm -hmm. not, you know, drugs and alcohol. It's, you know, surrounding yourself with great people. It's having mentors, people you can lean on and, you know, working out and eating smart. And if, and if your kids, you know, making sure that you're hanging out with people that have like common futures and not common past. That was one of the hard things for me was, I was like, man, I've known X, Y, and Z people for so long, but it's like, you know, do you wanna be somebody who you're, when you're 50 years old, looking back at your life being like, you know, man, I wish I would have changed my friends and taken more risks on myself. And here I am like sitting at a bar by myself, you know, just drinking because you know, I didn't really work on myself or change my environment. Or do you want to be that same person at 50 being like, man, I'm so thankful that, you know, I did the hard thing. I sucked it up and stayed in on weekends for, for a little while until I built a new network of friends. And now here I am with a family and we're happy. And 
and it's a lot easier said than done. But I mean, those are definitely two different paths. That, hey, now love it later. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. But that's tough in an instant gratification culture where everyone wants what they want immediately. And yeah, it doesn't work that way. We all want it now, and it's like we even and it makes in my job, my profession, people we want. I mean, I'm seeing it a lot with people with the calories. People are like, well, how many calories did I burn? And I'm like, well, there's a lot more that goes into exercise than just the calories. I mean, if you're strength training, it's, you know, the, the, benef- the, the, the benefits will be a lot like longer endured than if there's just that, for that single workout for calories. And, but it's because we have the access on our watches to see instantly, you know, what our heart rate is, how many calories we burn, you know, text messages. And so we've almost like correlated that in other areas of our lives too. It's crazy, man. What are your uh, your buddies doing now? The ones that your your ride or die buddies from back in the day. Um, I think you know some have cleaned cleaned up, and some haven't. You know, and but but you've put a your your. It's not like they're still your inner circle. No, not you know? at all. And and but you stayed in that com- in this in the com- same community. Yeah, I mean, but I just had to shut it off. And, and there was a while for a while I would hang out with them, and I just it got to a point where I just. I didn't have as much in common. Like I was about like eating like, you know, like boiled chicken and broccoli for dinner or something, just making that something like that, right? And and they were, you know, getting ready to go to the bar. Or I wanted to go to not I wanted to be able to go for, you know, a run. And you know, they so it just like I didn't have I didn't align with them. Like before, it was like we all just did drugs together. Where now or it came to the point where I, I was on a healthier lifestyle and I wanted to help um you know, not only myself, but be able to help other people. And I just had to start aligning myself with people that wanted that. And I started just reading, right? I started just reading books. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, like the one guy I know um, who's been on here, whose books I loved is John Gordon. I just started reading like- Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's the dude. He's the man. He's got lots of books. <laughs> yeah. He turns those things out like, <laughs> I don't know how he does that, man. But his, I mean, <laughs> they're so small. I mean, but his yeah. books like- they're simple. They're easy to read. So I started yeah. reading like you know stuff like that, and I started reading Gary Vee. We talked about, uh-huh. and I just you start to learn about the, either the type of person that you want to be or the type of people you should be hanging out with or how to treat people, and it was all kind of different than the the drug culture I had immersed myself into, which was you know a bit a bit, a bit more you know challenging for myself, and I just I really I commemorate. Um, like the people that did all that stuff because they wrote those books because personal development for me has been huge and just being able to meet people and just like, like ask the right questions. And it's just been a huge, huge help for me with, with everything in my life. What's the main thing that you want people to take away from your story? I mean, the main thing I tell people is to always focus on how far they've come and not how far they have to go because there was a lot of times where I wanted to quit and I just remembered what Eric did for me in jail, the things he said to me. And I also remembered all the times I'd failed as a kid, all the times I was unhappy and, and stressed and depressed. And I didn't wanna ever feel like that again. And I knew that if I went the other way, like if I went back to doing drugs or eating pizzas and cheesesteaks and all that stuff, that there was a good possibility I was gonna end up that same kid again. And I just had to keep telling myself that. And, and sure enough, the more I kept telling myself that, the more it was like second nature to just know that, like, okay, this is right, this is wrong, this is good, this is bad. Like, you know, go to this side of the street and, and don't go on the other side. And it just, mm-hmm. and um, be, and because a lot of people they like, I was they want the results quick, and it's not going to happen quick. Like, it took me 
I mean, I've been going at it 10 years and I still feel like I don't have it all figured out. You know, I'm only 31 years old and it took a while for me to get this fitness thing together where I was able to to work out and you know, it didn't just, it wasn't just like yesterday. I just all of a sudden was like, hmm, I think I'm gonna like start going on podcasts and write books. It was yeah. like, and I didn't even, I didn't even want to do it. Like I didn't want to, I didn't want to write another book, but you know, I felt like I just, there was something deeper calling me and it was my passion for recovery, but not like so, so much in the, like talking about like sobriety. It was more like, okay, like it was more like what kind of tools and, t- and tips can I have for when you do get into recovery on how you can like really thrive, like mm-hmm. how you can be healthy again. And that's why I just, I really wanted to, to just be more open about sharing my message of hope and encouragement to just help people, you know, focus on being better versions of themselves. 31, three books on your belt. I, I got sober when you, were, when you said 31, I was like, shit, man, I got sober <laughs> at 31. <laughs> you got like 10 years under your belt. Like I, that's amazing, man. You have a bright future ahead of you, my friend. I mean, I, I appreciate the kind words and it's been an honor an honor to, to talk to you. I mean, I've been following you for quite some time and just to be able to to kind of just sit in the room, you know, with my name on the wall there, it's just, it's really humbling. Well, it's cool. It's uh, It's been an honor to talk to you. Um, your story is amazing. The trajectory is incredible. It's super inspiring. Um, and it's just proof positive of what can happen when you get sober and you take stock of your life and responsibility for your actions and your decisions and you begin to pay it forward and you develop a, a you know a spiritual life and a, and a physically healthy life, like across the board, all of these things can congeal to craft this life that you never thought that you wanted or knew that you wanted um, to be this you know beacon of hope and, and light for so many people out there. It's really a beautiful thing. Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, if it just as, as long as you know I'm staying true to who I am and genuine, and that's all that counts, you know, and just being able to to really be there for people and never forget where I came from. And I mean, that was always the big thing. Is I just, I mean, I have friends that that reach out to me. And they're like, "You're like a celebrity now." I'm like, "No, I'm not. I'm just a person who I'm just trying to help people. I'm not a celebrity. I'm not anybody who's better than anybody else. I'm not smart. I just I just want to really just help people and." you know, share my story with as many people as possible. Cause this is a, it's a huge problem. I mean, more people are dying from drug overdoses now than car accidents. Huge. I mean, it's not like it's a small thing anymore. So with that in mind, let's close it down with um, some words of wisdom or some some hope for the person out there who's listening to this, who 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 is stuck and in that cycle where they feel like they just can't quit. I mean, I really would just say just just not to give up on yourself and to just know that life will be better on the other side of the tunnel. And you know, if you're standing in that dark tunnel right now and you can't see light, I think it's just important to have faith and just know that like faith is being able to see what's not seen and that light will be at the end of the tunnel. If you keep putting one foot in front of the other, like one day at a time, one week at a time, one month at a time, because you know what's behind you. You know, if you turn around and go back to that dark place, you know where that gets you. So why not try try something different and just to know that like you're not a fuck up, you just fucked up. I think a lot of people kind of st- they, they label themselves as a fuck up. I mean, I hear it a lot. I'm like, no, you're not. You just messed. I mean, it's, you made mistakes. It's okay. We all make mistakes. What did you learn from it? And I think it's important to, for people to understand that like they're not a failure to so not identify with your actions, right? Because you did these things, it doesn't necessarily mean that's who you are. 
you know? And I think that's a big one because you do, you think, you know, how could I be this person who's constantly making this, these <laughs> terrible choices? I must be an awful human being. And it's like, no, you're, you're just, you're a drug addict or you're an alcoholic. These are not who you really are. Right. You're suffering from a condition that is compelling you to make choices that are not in your best interest and that are alienating everyone around you. But the good news is we can fix that, right? Right. So I love what you said and I would just supplement it with these words, which is if you feel like you're in a hopeless state that there is always hope and you need not ever drink or use again if you don't want to. There is help available to you. And faith is super important as you mentioned, but also works are as well. You need to raise your hand and ask for help. You need to get over whatever fear you have around asking for help. Addicts and alcoholics, they wanna just <laughs> solve the problem by themselves. <laughs> yeah. I know as somebody who unsuccessfully attempted that, um, it's hard to do it alone. Most people can't, I couldn't. It's okay to ask for help. Uh, and I think you'll find if you if you extend yourself in that regard, there are a lot of people around who'd be more than willing to help you. And there is a path forward. And you know, as somebody who's been a, you know a part of this community for a long time, I've seen lives change in such dramatic fashion, it would just blow your mind. I mean, the stuff of cinema—it's crazy. Uh, and the life, as we said earlier, the life that you didn't even think that you wanted is out there waiting for you. It's not the end, it is the beginning. Couldn't have said it better myself. So thanks for spending some time with me today, man. Thanks for having me, yeah, man. I care about these issues a lot and uh, I really love how you carry the message, man. So much love and success to you. The new book is called The Heart of Recovery. It's out March 15th. March 12th. March 12th. Coming to bookstore soon, man. You can find that on Amazon. and. Uh, what else, man? Are you doing any like public events where people can come and see you or shake your hand or? No, I mean, I really don't have much, just much going plan. Back to Maryland. Just going back to Maryland that Are I don't you know. Doing like eye. a book tour or anything like I that? I wanted to and um, I talked to my my publicist and he was just like, I mean, I, we, we, we kind of want, I want it, but I mean, again, people are buying books online now and I just mm -hmm. like, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna retire being an author. I didn't, I didn't like this book isn't gonna make me a ton of money. I, I don't expect it to, I mean, if it does, great, but. It's just part of my message, I guess. You know, uh -huh. I still am a trainer. I, I love training people, um, and just hopefully the book it just just supplements you know that to to help people know that there's there's tools out there and there's different ways. You know, you might not have it all figured out, but there's a lot of people that have have tried and have had some success with it, and I just hope that they pick it up. Um, if people want to connect with you, dougbobes.com and at doug underscore bobes yeah. on Instagram. Instagram. Those yeah. are the best places. Yeah. All right, dude. Any last words? How do you feel? I feel great, man. This has been good. an honor. This has been. This is <laughs> definitely right, worth 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 the the east to west coast trip. All right, cool. Are you gonna go see Amy? We I saw her yesterday. Oh, you I, did? Yeah, right, we cool. went. We uh we walked around Santa Monica and um and then we uh I was like, oh, you should let me train you in person. She's like, no, <laughs> only on Skype. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so, so I went to I went to her place and I was I saw her little home gym. Mm -hmm. And um, put together a pull-up bar for her that she doesn't think she'll ever be able to use. But I said, you know, we'll get there. All right, good deal, man. All right, well, come back and talk to me again sometime. Yeah, man, absolutely. All right, peace, Lance. Mana, mana, I say. Sustenance from the gods. That was great, right? Hope you guys enjoyed that. Please let Doug know what you thought of today's conversation. You can hit him up on Twitter, at Doug Bobst Fitness. 
And you can follow him on Instagram at Doug underscore Bobst. And don't forget to pick up his latest book, The Heart of Recovery, Real People, Real Lives, Real Success Stories. And as always, links to everything are in the show notes, including Doug's other books, uh, to elevate your experience beyond the earbuds, my friends. So check that out on the episode page at richroll.com. If you are struggling with your diet, maybe you're in that place that Doug was in when he was eating calzones and pizza every day and fast food and the like, and you really want to finally figure this out and master your plate and get on top of your nutrition, but you feel like, I don't know how to cook. I don't really like cookbooks. I cannot tell you how much I recommend you check out our Plant Power Meal Planner. We get all kinds of crazy emails every single day from people that are using this, and it's really amazing how impactful it has been on people's lives. Basically, it answers a very important but basic question, which is how do I make nutritious eating, delicious, convenient, and affordable. And we've really solved this problem. So to learn more, go to meals.richroll.com. And when you do, you'll see that you get access to thousands of delicious, easy to prepare plant-based recipes that are all customized based on personal preferences that you input when you sign up. You get unlimited grocery lists, you get grocery delivery integrated right into the product in most metropolitan areas. So when you say, I want this recipe, I'm gonna make this, and suddenly, magically, everything that you need to make that recipe is delivered right to your doorstep. You also get access to a team of expert nutrition coaches at the ready to answer all of your questions seven days a week. And all of this is just a dollar 90 a week when you sign up for a year, literally the price of a cup of coffee. So to learn more, and to sign up, again, go to meals.richroll.com or click on Meal Planner on the top menu on my website, richroll.com. If you'd like to support our work here on the podcast, just tell your friends about the show, about your favorite episode. Take that screen grab, throw it up on the IG or on Twitter or wherever you uh, enjoy your social media experience. Uh, most importantly, subscribe to the show. Do that on YouTube on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify. We're now on Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to it. Uh, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, leave a comment on YouTube, and you can support us on Patreon at richroll.com forward slash donate. I want to thank everybody who helped put on the show today. Jason Camiello for audio engineering, production, show notes, interstitial music. Blake Curtis, who's manning the soundboard right now, and Margot Lubin for videoing the show and all the clips that you see on YouTube and social media. Um, Jessica Miranda for graphics, DK right here. Thank you, my brother, for advertiser relationships. My pleasure. Without you, this show is a no-go, my man. So It's not really true. Much love. Uh, and Allie Rogers for portraits and theme music, as always, by Anna Lemma. So thanks for all the support and the love and the attention. I do not take you guys for granted. Uh, I love you, and I'll see you back here next week with uh, my friend Andy Romage, founder of the One Year No Beer Movement. It's a great story, and he's also an author. His book is called The 28-Day Alcohol-Free Challenge. It's a good one. Until then, uh, get outside and move. Love your friends. Reach out to somebody you haven't talked to in a while. Pick up that phone. Whatever you need to do, man. Enrich your life. Peace. Plants. I must stay. Yeah.